Here we go. Sorry. That's ridiculous. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Great Divide podcast. We have returned again, just as we promised. Just as General Patton said, I shall return to the Philippines years ago, back in I don't know when. So have we returned to our listenership. (laughs) How's that for an intro? Uh, But we are back with episode 95. And yes, this is the beginning of another deep dive we thought we were finished just as uh michael corleone said in the godfather 3 just when i thought i was out they pulled me back in and here we are back with Svine to do a deep dive of the wonderland ep hello Svine. you're certainly full of quotes today hello tom how are we <laughs> we are good i think we are good i am good you sound like yeah. you're good yeah i'm good all right. Well, are you ready for this? Because in our in our pre-show um, discussion, which was very short for a change, we uh, we talked about how we've prepared, and as usual, we our, our methods of preparation and the and the amount of time that we've sunk into <laughs> that preparation is vastly different. So we began talking about this. What you you just said like five years ago, we were talking about this. Yeah, I'm sure that that exchange will make it to the outtakes. But um, we, um, we we've been talking about Wonderland forever, haven't we? It's it's one thing that we we kind of agree that um, in addition to the albums, Wonderland had to fit in there somewhere. That was sort of the the one thing we uh, would do beyond the albums, sort of without discussion. And other things can still happen, but that will be more of a discussion. And my word document, the first one where I started making notes about Wonderland was created in July 2017. <laughs> so that's been five <laughs> years. I don't think I've been working on it continually, not by any stretch or, or means, but uh, mm-hmm. it's been around and sometimes things were added to it. So it'll be interesting. Some of these th- notes are old. <laughs> well, the show is old now. If I make yeah, go on a brief, tan- yeah, a, a, a brief tangent, I think we we referenced this last time, but th- this is almost the, the the full tenth anniversary of the show. It started in May, I believe. Yeah. Of 2012, hard to believe. Ten years, ten years on, and yeah. you know we we said that we were going to have possibly have Bruce on the show for the next episode, but we did qualify that by saying you never know what could happen there, and. Uh, and as we said, you never knew what could happen, but uh, Bruce is not able to, to be on right now. But by the time you hear this, who knows? Maybe we will have spoken to him and we will have some of his comments that we can throw in to these different songs. That, that's the hope. Um, but Bruce is busy out there on the road as we speak. Uh, and his schedule is just full of skids and big country and all sorts of things. So he's trying to fit us in when he can. We'll see how that works. But for the meantime, in the meantime, um, for now, anyway, you're stuck with us. 
I think people know the score right now, how it is. Yeah. This isn't the first time we waited for Bruce, but uh, he's welcome back anytime. But we do have Wonderland now. So shall we just dive into it? Let's do it. Let's set the stage. In the spirit of limiting ourselves to 80 minutes, like we said in the previous episode. Oh, that's right. This is going to be quite a challenge. All right. Well, then we do need to dive in. So here we go. Back to the water. Let's test it out. It's been a while since we've been in it, but... uh... Hopefully it'll feel good once we jump in. So we'll start by talking a bit about the Wonderland release itself, and then eventually release into the Wonderland song. Released on the 13th of January, 1984. Took some years before I came to it. And I thought that's a good place to start. The story of when we picked up individually the the EP. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when you first heard of it? saw it bought it and i'm assuming those are three different dates well i i cannot i honestly can't remember that when i actually bought it but i i do know that um as i've talked about in the past when when i really went crazy about big country it was it was during the steel town release i was aware of them before so had you know gotten into fields of fire and that kind of thing but it wasn't until hearing where the rose is sown and then buying steel town that i decided Oh man, I've got to I've got to have everything from this band, which wasn't much at that point. Um, so that was that was around the time that I bought the Wonderland EP, and I do very distinctly remember the cassette, and I remember playing the heck out of that thing. Mm. Um, so I would have heard Steel Town first, and then went back to the Crossing and and Wonderland. I'm pretty sh- pretty sure that's how that happened. Um, so yeah, I, I I would imagine I bought it at a local mall that where I bought almost all of my my uh, cassettes at the time. I was big into cassettes. I liked the compact nature of them. I could, you know, stack them and look at them. I I didn't it wasn't even buying vinyl back then. Um, so yeah, I remember having that cassette. I remember having my little Sony Walkman playing it when I was out mowing the yard and sitting in my room and you know those great old times when. We didn't have so many distractions in the world, and you could just sit and listen to four albums, or in this case, four EPs from beginning to end, and uh, that was just a normal thing. So, yeah, I, I do remember playing it quite a bit, and and wow, what a great what a great compliment it was to the music that I was already going nuts about with Steel Town, and then to, to discover Wonderland, and and of course all the great songs on the Crossing. Yeah. Um yeah, it was it was what a what a collection already from from a band of incredible incredible music. So you say cassette, but it was the American four track version on cassette then. Yeah, that's true. It was the American four track cassette and it wasn't until years later that I even was aware that there was another version. I mean, whenever anyone said Wonderland EP, to me it was just those four songs. Yeah. Um you know, Angle Park, The Crossing, Wonderland and All Fall Together. So it wasn't until probably when I when I got onto the uh internet and became part of the big country internet community that I realized there were other or at least another version out there for people who weren't necessarily in America. So um yeah, so I was a little jealous at that time because I think I don't know if I had heard Heart and Soul when I found that out. I don't know if I'd heard that yet. Maybe I had, I can't remember, but um you know, and then the Chance Live version. But for me, when I think of the Wonderland EP, it's always just those four songs. 
And I know we had this discussion when we were talking about it. You know, what are we going to talk about? Are we going to talk about just the four songs? We're going to talk about the six track version. So we kind of had a compromise where we'll leave off the live version of Chance and yeah, the twelve inch mix version. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense to talk about. But the other songs, sure, those those can be discussed. Yeah. Uh, I was asking about the cassette because I also picked up Wonderland on cassette, but that was the Canadian six-track edition. Wow. So uh, so we both had it on cassette in different uh, forms, so that that's kind of funny. It took a couple of years before I found it, and uh, I only knew it existed when I physically saw it in a store. And I can actually pinpoint the date that I bought it. But that is because the circumstances of getting it are very specific. It was 1987, and like most fans, at, at that point, I had the first three albums. So I do not think I had any of the singles or anything like that yet. They were not really available in my neck of the woods, so I didn't know about them. It was the three albums, and that's it. And As always, I was hungry for more. I had no info, no access to news. Just had to check the record stores and see what showed up, basically, for Big Country and for anything else. So it was the start of the summer of 1987. I was 15. School year was recently over, and I had two months of glorious summer holidays ahead of me, which is already kind of setting the stage here. So I planned to start it off by traveling to Oslo for our games convention. We're talking about tabletop role-playing games and board games and those type of things. So I was going to stay with my uncle, my mom's younger brother, and everything kind of worked out. So I flew down was met, and the first thing we did was go to a record store. And that was Virgin Megastore on Lillegrensen, downtown Oslo. And down in the basement, looking through the cassette racks, because that was my preferred format too. I mean, cassettes for me was kind of movement and freedom, and I could bring my music with me anywhere, on the Walkman, on small tape decks and stuff. So, so that was kind of the thing for me. So um, looking through those tape racks, and there's Wonderland, and I just about my jaw hit the floor. What's this? And uh, and I got it. And I know this was Thursday, the 25th of June, 1987. <laughs> because the next day was the first day of the game convention. So I, I could go and look that up and say, ah, then I must have bought it the day before. So I didn't know exactly which day I bought it. And there's not many big country releases I can say that for, let me tell you. So, uh, And I remember also that I bought... Ace Frehley's first solo album after leaving Kiss, the first Frehley's Comet album on cassette tape, and the first uh, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow album. So a couple of great pieces of music that I brought home with me. And those things, that was the summer of 1987 to me. So just awesome times. And it was six track. Later on, found out all all the different versions. Like uh, you had the, the four tracks in America. Most of the world got the two-track seven-inch uh, single or the three-track 12-inch single. That was the norm. That was the common format. And America got four tracks, while Japan and Netherlands got five tracks, and Canada got the mother load with six tracks. So uh, I, I just thought to myself in preparation for this, what do we call these things? I remember this was important at the time. So the two-tracks... Is clearly a single. The three or four tracks is kind of an EP. And five or six tracks makes it a mini album almost. And Wonderland has all of those formats. And because I got the six track, I always saw it as a mini album. 
And that's kind of important to me uh, because mini albums are kind of a little bit more exalted than singles or maxi singles, EPs. I wanted Wonderland to have a higher status in the Big Country catalog than a single or even EP release because it means something more. It means it's almost a catalog release that belongs in the discography and stuff like that. And truth to be told, I have albums, I mean, full albums that aren't much longer than the Wonderland 6-track release. So this is my first quiz, Tom, to you today. How <laughs> long do you think the 6-track Wonderland mini-album actually is? Oh, wow. Oh, let's see. 5, 10, 24... The six track you're saying, yeah, I would say it's thirty over thirty minutes, thirty thirty three minutes. You're not very far off at all. It's thirty one forty. Oh wow! So you're right around there. So it, that that's a long release. It's definitely more than a sort of EP type thing. It it is a mini album. It, yeah, and and I have albums that are shorter than this. So. Um, I guess at the time, I really wanted to see it as an exalted release. And I wanted everybody to see it that way, like I did. And for, for ages, I thought the six-track was the norm. So it was, I was kind of disappointed to hear that it wasn't the norm. And in fact, it was the abnormality was the six-track version. <laughs> but I'm, I'm talking about how the mini-album was seen back then, because today you don't talk about mini-albums anymore. You just don't. I think that went away when you started having the CD singles, and they could be quite long too. They could yes. put mixes on that went on forever, and suddenly you had a sort of long thing, and then it just all became singles, and it didn't matter anymore. Nobody talks about mini albums anymore. But there's no denying that when you look at Wonderland as a type of release beyond the two-track single, it is the most significant one in the band's history. And it's not just because of the quality of the track, but that's definitely a big part of it. But also because of the amount of formats and associated tracks related to the release. There are quite a few tracks across all the formats. And this is my second quiz to you, Tom. How many tracks has been associated with the Wonderland release, just across formats, different versions? Um, oh, man, this would, just, this would just be a total guess. I'll say 12. Ah, nice. So there's quite a few. So let's just go through the overview of associated tracks, because uh, some of these are exclusive to some of the versions that we mentioned before. We have the Wonderland 7-inch edit and the Wonderland 12-inch edit, or the extended version. Those are the two that uh, kind of the two versions of that song. And then you have um, the Giant B-side, which was used on the 7-inch version. That was the common version across everything. Then you have the Giant 12-inch edit version, used on a 12-inch single. You have All Fall Together, which is on the U.S. 4-track EP and the Canadian 6-track. So we both had that one, thankfully. Yes. Uh, All Fall Together Giant Remix, which is a different version of that on the Netherlands 12-inch EP. A lot of these have showed up later on uh, CD Expanded Edition, so we all will have them. But back then, you really had to get these different versions of the EP to get them. So back then, this was kind of uh, archaeology to try and find all the parts. You have Angle Park, which was on the Canadian six track. You have Heart and Soul, which was on the Canadian six track, and the Crossing on the Canadian six tracks. Also, some of these on the American version. You have the Chance Extended Remix, aka the 12 inch version, which is on the Canadian six track. 
you have in a big country 12 inch version on the French 12 inch single. And then you have Lost Patrol. This is kind of bizarre. It's live at Barrowlands. It's spread across two seven inch sides in a double seven inch single set as part one and part two. And I actually have that release. It's a gatefold double seven inch single release. And the second one has Lost Patrol part one and part two on side A and B. <laughs> Weird. Also, also you get the, the B side on, um, on the American seven inch and it's complete there. Uh, also on the UK clear vinyl 12-inch EP and the Japanese 12-inch EP. So that one was used a uh, number of places. So there you have it. Number of associated tracks. And then we have some loose tracks like Wonder Great is Knocking About. You have Bruce <laughs> Watson demos Knocking About. Uh, and you could add uh, a number of uh, these tracks together to make our sort of exalted Wonderland release. And I'm thinking a company like Cherry Red. They are very good with those type of releases. So given the chance, I could see them releasing Wonderland as a sort of standalone release. But obviously Universal owns the rights, so there's no releasing that one by Cherry Red. But Universal don't really do many things like that. So it would have been more likely to happen with Cherry Red than Universal, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, um, But I'm, I'm just, again, I want Wonderland to be an exalted release. Like it kind of felt like it was with that six-track thing that lasted well over half an hour. That's interesting. That, that's about as long as uh, Dress to Kill, the Kiss, the great third Kiss <laughs> album, which was a full-length album. No, it's an interesting point. For me, um, two Kiss references in one show, by the way. That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've never thought of it that way. But for me, it was always, as I said, that EP, that the four songs. And I, I can't remember – some some other American can correct me, but I can't remember ever really – thinking about the term mini album you know when i was growing up and listening to music for me a uh, ep was it was either an ep or an album but i but i definitely take your point you know with six songs over 30 minutes that's that's hardly an ep um that and it's not quite an album at the time either so i could see mini album but maybe it, maybe it was coming maybe it was since i came back to it rather than was there really when it was released um, I just look at it as kind of a filler. Well, filler is is almost blasphemy considering the quality of these songs. But stopgap is what you're thinking of. It, yes, exactly, exactly. Like a stopgap between albums, and um, you know, to, to keep that to keep that buzz going among the general public as they waited for the second full length big country album, which which had came out a year later after the crossing. So that just shows you the different the different. Um, the difference in time periods there as far as how the music business worked, you know, they, they panicked thinking we got to get something else out there. So people don't forget about big country. It's been almost a full year. Um, you know, whereas now who, who can make any sense of it now, but even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, bands were taking, um, far longer to release albums and it was just considered the norm. So, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I always looked at it. Like this is a great collection of, four tracks and it was a great bridge and and we'll talk about this when we get to the musical dissection as well but it really was a it was a it was a great musical bridge too um between the crossing and what was to come on steel town i mean you can really see the the connection and the evolving of the band's music so definitely and i will also make that point lyrically but uh for, for the time being uh looking at wonderland as a standalone release uh 
Stewart commented on this in 1990 in an interview with Melody Maker, and um, he spoke about the need for product a bit. And I quote, because the American record company was so desperate for new material, specifically the second album, they got together a lot of unreleased material and B-sides and Wonderland and released it on a 12-inch EP. A lot of people thought it was our second album. I really like Wonderland, the side of big country that's about innocence and a sense of wonder and a belief in how people can get it on with each other. It's all there in Wonderland. The song just came out of a jam. It's a bit dense as a single, but as a song, it works great. So, um, and, and I have more quotes as we get further into this, that uh, nobody were happy about being pushed to create product under pressure, but uh, everybody's pleased with the results. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How could you not be? Oh, really? And just the, and just the word dense, that's, a, that's an interesting word for him to say. It's a little dense as a single, and I'm assuming he means probably the, the production of it because we know that will come into play with, uh, with the Steel Town mix later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Wonderland was like a, a sort of added on in between a kind of track. We, we, we'd done the crossing, and uh, the label uh, wanted another track. Um, and obviously, we, we, we hadn't quite written all the all the songs for Steel Town, anyways. But um, we had Wonderland and a few other songs, and it came out as a, a mini album in the states and Canada and elsewhere. Uh, it came out as a single in the UK. Um, so that was like a little taster, uh, you know, what we had achieved and what was coming next, and it ended up being quite quite successful, you know. So we're really pleased with it. Wonderland was a kind of a song that I'd been working on for a while and you know like I said the label had wanted a, a track to come out in between the, the two albums so um, it was one of those songs you know it, it kind of came to nothing and it came together quite quick and it, it kind of reminds me of good times as well. Hi guys it's the mighty Ming here from the Trading Post reporting live from Dunfermline Toon. A wee birdie's told me that you're doing a deep dive on Wonderland. Wonderland, oh my goodness. Cast my mind back. First seeing the video, that was the first thing. Um, the video of the song coming on telly, watching it, it must have been a Saturday morning. Um, Stuart looking cool. We've got big flying jackets. We've got Mark with one drum. It was out in the cold, it was the snow, and what a cool video that was. Uh, and we get the releases, the releases, I remember clearly going into Europa Records in Dunfermline. Stuart had worked in there, always kept big country stuff behind the shelf for me if it came in. And lo and behold, went in after school and he pulls out Collector's Edition 12-inch clear vinyl. I remember that as clear as the vinyl, as clear as the day, unbelievable, so delighted to get my hands on that, the double pack, I bought the double pack in audio boots um, for the 7 inch in Dunfermline, um, a double pack, a big country single, it was amazing at the time, um, you had the pictures in the middle of the uh, older concerts from the crossing time, uh, just great stuff, absolutely great stuff. And then playing it live, playing it live. What more can I can I put in within Margot's theme live built in to that song? 
kid and now it's just absolutely terrible. You get a feeling I like Wonderland and all the different releases. You're doing a great job, guys. Rolling at the number 100. And that tune is just fantastic. Thanks for doing a deep dive. Thanks for all your work. And, um, hey, speak again soon. Hi Tom and Swine, it's Lee Waterton here, I hope you're both doing well. Can I just say first of all, it's great to hear you guys back, you've been much missed. Um, As regards Wonderland, my, oddly enough, my overall overriding memory of, of that time is when I bought the double pack and the live version of Lost Patrol was split into two parts, which to me seemed a rather bizarre thing as I'd sort of never had to get up and, and, and you know, turn over a single just to continue listening to the track. Why do you think you guys think that was? Do you think it was a just a bad decision on the part of the record company or do you think it was down to licensing issues with the other tracks? I'd really be interested to hear your thoughts on it. Take care, guys. All the best. Hi, everyone. This is Worth Thompson from Zachary, Louisiana, USA. Big Country is a band that has many amazing songs in their catalogue. But for me, none can quite capture the essence of the band the way Wonderland does. In the United States, we have a national monument called Mount Rushmore. There are four images of U.S. presidents carved into the living rock on a grand scale. There are so many great big country songs, it would be a difficult proposition to say that any one tune is the best. Regardless of which song may be a favorite, I have no doubt that Wonderland is always in that discussion and as such is certainly one of the Mount Rushmore of big country songs. Wonderland is more of a portrait than it is a song. Few songs can paint an image quite so thoroughly. The guitars are clean and provide a sense of awe and possibility. Tony's bass reminds us that our feet are firmly on the ground. The contrast between the two is exactly what paints a picture of endless skies and limitless hope. The military drum-like beat gives the song an urgency that is also reflected in the lyrics. The lyrics remind us that although life can deal out a series of blows that touch all aspects of our being, ultimately the listener is responsible for making their own happiness. Perhaps Wonderland is more a state of mind that should be found in the blessings of love in our relationships, no matter what the world throws at us. From Stewart's soaring vocals to the best drum roll Mark ever put on tape, Big Country reminds us that the most epic vistas are the landscapes we create with our own families. Wonderland indeed. Let's get into Wonderland, the song then. If we look at the chart info first, how did it do as a single? Because this was always going to be the next single. Whatever song they came up with, that would be the single, which is kind of an interesting situation to be in, rather than make an album and you have like 10 candidates and you pick the best one. And here you had one. So it did well. In the UK, it peaked at number eight, which was their highest chart entry on their home turf to date. 
uh, not by too much. The previous record was held by chance at number nine, so it was beaten with one spot. They went on top of the pops to promote it, but rather than giving the song a further lift, it bizarrely stalled and went down, which is very unusual. Uh, so there was a bit of discussion about that, but uh, it did make its mark in any case, and uh, they kept promoting it. They made their second out of three appearances on the music show The Tube on the 17th of February, 1984. And on this appearance, they played in a big country, Wonderland, Pearl Man, and Harvest Home. And these songs have all been made available in HD quality on the Big Country YouTube channel, so you can go there and see those. They are fairly classic, all of those great performances by the band. Um, and that was the second time they were able to promote Wonderland on TV as their current single. And a short time after that, the band went to the US for their live performance on the Grammys, which was followed immediately by their second US tour. And that kind of ends the, the Wonderland era, because then they go back into promoting crossing mode. But uh, let's go back to the creation of the song. We have a number of early versions and demos. In fact, three. Specifically three. <laughs> the song was written and recorded in the days leading up to Christmas 1983. But uh, they might have had a demo knocking about a little before then, because Bruce has the original demo for Wonderland. It was included on the last of the Hole in the Head Gang in 2001, reissued on Demology later. And it's an instrumental, hardly the entire song, but it's definitely that main guitar leading into the song repeated ad nauseum through that version with uh, some passages that sound more like Wonderland and some that sounds less like it. But that was a good starting point.
And that takes us to the two work in progress uh, versions we have, which are both on the Steel Town Represents Deluxe Editions. A work in Process 1 and Work in Process 2, which is also known as Wonder Great, our theme tune. That's right. A song so wondrous and great, it became the theme song for the Great Divide Big Country podcast. Yeah, but you probably picked it more for the the Great Divide section than the Wonderland section to tie in with the, the title. Well, that's true. Yes, but at the same time, it's that great mix between the two. There's just something so driving about that song and rough and nasty yeah. um well nasty is probably the wrong word but it's, it's just got that demo-esque feel but it's where demos tend to be a little faster than they'll end up being on the on the polished version they end up being a little rougher but they they sometimes retain an emotional quality that gets occasionally gets lost in the final version and i think that's kind of the case for this instrumental which which always resonated with me emotionally so well, especially because it does represent two of my favorite big country songs, but also the, just the there there are differences there too.
what a great track. It's amazing how they took that and plucked Wonderland from it, and then The Great Divide, but uh, getting ahead of myself. They clearly jammed together a couple of ideas, and uh, as they got together and tried to make sense of some music quickly to get a song ready for single release. Yeah. This might also be the first piece of music that was created for the Steel Town album, that they, they managed to salvage the Great Divide from the parts they didn't use for Wonderland, and remembered that when they started doing uh, Steel Town stuff. Who knows? They might have had something around later, but it's the earliest bit we know of, at least. I think so, definitely. In fact, um, from the country, from an early Country Club magazine that came out before the EP or the mini album or whatever you want to call it was released, but after the Wonderland single was released, there was a line that said, um, Wonderland and Giant are early examples of this excellent new material, and you can be sure there's more to come. Mm. So they were talking about the writing sessions that Stuart and Bruce especially were, were having as they were preparing for the second album. And uh, yeah, so I think you're right. You know, Wonderland, our Wonder Great, probably was among the very first bits of, uh, of songwriting that was done for the, uh, for the second album. One thing that uh, I was a little surprised to learn a few years ago when, uh, you know, going back to how long I've been researching this song, was whether the band felt that Wonderland was rushed. They thought so back then. Uh, and they were not happy with how it turned out initially. Uh, so I have some interesting quotes here. Andy Inkster sent me a clipping from an unknown Australian music magazine, which is probably an oxymoron. But uh, <laughs> he, really, he really only has the clipping itself, so the name of the magazine is lost. But the clipping survives, and it is from the time when the Wonderland EP first came out. And Ooh, it features nice. a quote by Tony Butler. And he says, Wonderland, our next single, was the last thing we recorded, and that, and that was somewhat rushed. It didn't have time to develop before it was recorded. We know we don't ever want to do that again. Wow. I, I had no idea. I, that's a first for me. I hadn't heard that quote before. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And uh, he wasn't the only one. I have a quote from Bruce Watson in Jamming Magazine, November 1984, where he says about the whole situation of having to go in and record quickly. We get on great with Phonogram. They don't pressure us into writing songs, but they said a single needs to come out in a new year. So we went into the studio to try and write something. So it was the first time we'd been in that environment where we had to sit down and try to work something out. That way of working doesn't suit us at all because we're quite prepared to rehearse the stuff we've done and take it out live. But now it's getting to the stage where if we go out and play it live, it might not do as well as the old songs. I suppose it happens to every group, but we don't like to work that way. And the mm. interviewer then asks, how are you finding the pressures of all this sudden success? Finding yourself thrown into the studio to write a single and so on. And Bruce says, and this echoes Tony's words, well, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't do that again. There were no more Christmas or New Year's singles. No standalone singles that weren't attached to an album or at the very least a best of. So even though nobody would think of Wonderland as a failed experiment today, the feeling of having to settle for a track 
a feeling like they had to settle on something rather than work on it, on it until they were satisfied. It was clearly something they didn't like. It stuck with them a bit, and, and nobody can fault them. It, it seems almost like they did, did do that with uh, years, a few years later with Heart of the World. That's one song that you know isn't really attached to anything. Save Me, you can certainly attach to the Through a Big Country Greatest Hits. But Heart of the World seemed to have come out of nowhere. I wonder if that's I wonder if that's an example of them trying to put something out. Who knows? We'd have to ask them about that. But that's the only other one I can think of that was a single that wasn't attached to any album. I I had the feeling that they went in and recorded Save Me and Heart of the World more or less at the same time. And the record company opted to hold one back. And again, the stopgap thing. Uh, I don't think the band went into the studio, were pushed in and said, you have to come up with this single now. I think that's the difference. Yeah. They were not going to do that again. And I I still think they didn't. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, if, if, if that was an example of that. And that was kind of a, a no-purpose single because the album was right around the corner, really. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is strange that if they had them... I mean, they released both of those songs as singles, so why not put Heart of the World on Through a Big Country as well? But that's for another show. It is. You know, Wonderland turned out great, so no matter how they felt about it, it's even kind of a surprise for us to hear them say that. They felt they had to settle. They didn't feel they had time for the song to develop. They had to settle for it rather than be happy with it. That is pretty stunning. That's pretty stunning. Yeah. I'm not even sure if they remembered those feelings today because it turned out so great, and it is such a highlight in the live shows and it is such a beloved song so maybe that kind of eases the blow and almost takes it away completely well it is interesting it it is interesting real quick that he says that bruce made that comment about not knowing how a song would go over live and they they like to try him out live which which of course they did uh after that on the peace in our time era stuff but yeah i remember seeing the the barrowlands concert um the 83 New Year's Eve concert and of course they played Wonderland in that and it was always interesting to me to 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 hear them trying to come to grips with that song live. I mean it sounded great and it, and it looked like it went over great, but it was in, was interesting to hear that done. There was a little there there didn't seem to be the full embracing of that track until maybe the following tour. Um I just always remember feeling like Wonderland was they were kind of trying to feel that out when they played that on the crossing tour right after it came out. And I always felt that way of, on the uh, on the Barrowland show. Yeah. And the audience is also in listening mode. They're, oh, here's a new song. We don't know it. And they kind of end up listening. And that ends up quickly looking like a muted audience. That's yes. <laughs> yeah, it does. So, uh, yeah, it, it does. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. And uh, Barrowlands was the first performance. Hmm. But uh, we should keep in mind that they did two performances that day. That's right. They did a matinee show and they did the evening show. And the evening show is fully documented on DVD, Blu-ray, not Blu-ray. We dream of the Blu-ray, don't we? But it's out on DVDs and we have the CDs and, and everything. That, that well chronicled. The matinee show is kind of a bit more unknown. But let us set the stage for that day. On the morning of those shows, there was a torrential downpour. It was pissing rain, rattling off the pavements outside the venue. But people were still lining up outside in the wind and the rain. And uh, there was a huge banner outside saying, Barrowland is Wonderland. 
that had been draped across the venue in homage to their next single, <laughs> which nobody had yet heard, but it was debuted on that day. The band turned up for soundcheck by noon, at which time there were already hundreds of fans waiting outside. They let the fans in after the sound checks, and uh, then they went on with the matinee show, which was the very first time Wonderland was played. If someone went to both the matinee and the evening shows, they will have heard the track twice, because that, that was the day it was played first. Wow. And there is bootleg audio existing of this matinee gig. Oh. So I'm, so I'm wondering if you, Tom, and everyone else, do you want to hear the very first public performance of Wonderland ever? Yes, please. This is it. This is actually the first time we've ever played this in our entire lives. It's not ever coming to the next time. It's a new single. It's not ever
really drove across as you know. The thing about it is, is that if they just treat us, you just count the hell out of what's going That's great. Oh, man. The sound isn't the best, but the, it's historic and it's interesting. I think people who listen to this will find it. Oh, yeah. Nice. Absolutely. Nice oh, that's fantastic. Man, I like I said, I knew that the band seemed a little, you know, like they were a little hesitant when they played it. They were trying to come to grips with it. And now I fully understand why. I knew I knew it was an early playing of the of the song, but I didn't realize that day was the first time they ever played it. So now it all yeah. makes sense. It was the first time they ever performed Wonderland live at Barrowlands, the matinee show on the 31st of December, 1983, two whole weeks before it would be released as a single. So nobody knew it. Wow. I mean, it wow. Was, some might have heard it, played it by the inner circle or something like that, but the audience as a whole would not know it. How incredible that they had a banner that said that too, you know, that Barrowlands is Wonderland or, or whatever it said. Um, that how incredible is that uh, is that when the fact that the single hadn't even come out yet so they must have really been on the <laughs> with the pulse of what the band was doing the single was well announced and everybody was looking forward to it but another aspect of this was that this was the homecoming it had been 8 or 9 months since they played on their home turf and in the meantime they had gone around the world found global success so when they finally did come back they were a much much bigger band than uh, when they left so there was a lot to celebrate, and uh, it was like welcoming back the, the heroes who had conquered the world. It was kind of that vibe. So amazing evening, amazing day, really. That's all we can say. And Wonderland slotted into that quite nicely. And it really set up the band for, for this release that with, with the song they felt they had to settle for. But uh, I think all of us embraced it uh, immediately. I mean, when I put on my tape, just like I'm sure you put on yours, it was like vintage classic ultimate big country as i always wanted them to sound it was there was nothing undeveloped about it at all so but still the, the, the feeling of think of what it might have been i can't even think of what it might have been it's so set now no i can't either and yeah it, it was it was great i mean that that whole ep just cemented everything i loved already about the band and really set the stage for what was to come for sure well, I'd already heard what was to come because I'd already heard Seal Town, but I'm spe <laughs> speaking in generalities. Um, yeah, it, it, it really, you know, we often talk in big country circles about this holy trinity of albums, the, the first three albums. But really, whatever you would call a, 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 a quad, <laughs> quad godhead, I don't know what that would be. Um, you, you have to put Wonderland in there. Too. I mean, that, that, it's a part of that entire mystique of the band that that was created and carved into our souls um, during those few, <laughs> first few years. Yeah. It's granted, yes, some of the songs are are older songs that they brought back to redo, but still, it it's just that that EP is just as influential for me uh, musically and lyrically as the first few albums. I mean, it's all a part of the amazing piece of work that they did. Yeah, absolutely. Just because there's fewer songs doesn't mean there's a dip in quality. There's no, no chance, no. no chance of that. And that's actually a cool point you're making that this, this belongs in the chronology there. I had the first three album and then came to Wonderland later. And it makes, 
it made total sense. This is the continuation. They're going to continue as they've been. But otherwise, as we know, peace in our time was the real continuation. And that just puts things into perspective. Yes, it does. We'll call it the, the quad god, the quad god of big country, the, those first four releases. Before we get to the song itself, I have more quotes from the band. So let's, let's take them with us into the uh, discussion. First of all, um, as mentioned, Bruce Watson was interviewed in Jamming Magazine, issue 18 from November 1984. And the interviewer says, you were talking about broadening out the sound a bit. But I was a bit disappointed in Wonderland. I thought it could have fitted easily on the crossing. And Bruce says, do you reckon? He thought it was completely different from anything on that album. I thought it was a change. It was the first thing we'd written for ages. <laughs> so that was kind of, uh, yeah. Uh, I was going to bring this up when I will, when we talk about the musical aspect of it, but um, and the old cliche of every song sounds the same that, that they heard. Because yeah. I would agree. I mean it's it's certainly it sounds like big country there's no denying that but um there are a lot of differences there from what was on the first album De definitely but what what boggles my mind is the crossing came like half a year before a yeah, little more maybe i, I know i know and 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 the interview has has an issue that it sounds like the band basically it sounds like <laughs> an album right. that came half a year before it's what, what do you expect like how how much musical growth must we have here before <laughs> i mean it's there's there's something about that mentality that should be challenged and i think bruce does that a little bit in his answer without really pushing it way back but he, he definitely disagrees i'm not sure i would go as far even as bruce saying that it's completely different it, it clearly isn't completely different but no there is there is an evolution yeah absolutely and it, it's that that's an interesting quote because it really that probably is the start of of that whole thing that would haunt them um, yeah. for the rest of their careers. You know, you sound every song sounds the same. Every song is the same. Every song has the bagpipe sound, and, and that's not even the case at all in Wonderland. Um, does it sound like Big Country? Yes, but it doesn't have the bagpipe sound really. Um, maybe there's one tip, one little guitar part in there that you could, I guess, say is reminiscent of that, but. Yeah, that that's interesting. That that really probably could be pinpointed as the beginning of that kind of criticism. And it's unbelievable that it would come, as you say, just a few months after the album, the first album came out. Yeah, how dare they sound like themselves? Yeah, it's pathetic. And I have more quotes, and this kind of sets the stage for really how it was perceived at the time and how Big Country would go on to be perceived. And this is not all happy reading but it belongs in the discussion about that time. So we have actually some reviews from Smash Hits. Smash Hits wrote the following blurb about Wonderland in early 1984, and I quote, Take my hand and we will be in Wonderland, sings Stuart Adamson in booming butch tones. This is big country's answer to the film Gone with the Wind, bags of romance, riding off into deep red sunsets and never letting on how upset you really are. It needs to be played at great volume to capture the sound and the sweep. Mm. And that really is a good review for Smash Hits because in the exact same issue, they were even harsher to, for example, The Alarm in the review of Wherever You're Hiding Where the Storm Broke, which is printed right next to the Wonderland one. And let's just do that one for shits and giggles. 
I quote, it's been said before, but that doesn't mean it can't be said again. The alarm have learned a thing or two from the clash, and this is their closest copy yet. <laughs> Noisy sentiments, barked backup vocals, and a chattering drum pattern. Not for me. <laughs> oh, I love that song too. So Some quality reviews there by, by Smash Hits. I guess we should expect that from that particular rag. I mean, <sighs> Big Country always got harsh reviews, and we have read some ridiculous ones in the past. I have a clip from an unnamed U.S. music magazine, which really is about Steeltown, and it sounds like a good Steeltown review, but it includes a reference to Wonderland, which is kind of less flattering. And I quote, Despite unavoidable echoes of the crossing, especially the bagpipe, Steeltown's firm rock and roll conviction and inventive aggressive guitar grooves avert the danger of self-parody that their interim EP Wonderland suggested. Adamson's songwriting is more consistent, his vocal delivery less soapboxy, and more at home in the tracks, unquote. So, so basically, this unnamed American magazine is referring to Wonderland as self-parody and as being soapboxy. And these kind of reviews really piss me off. The, the band always got such a hard time for daring to have a sound, and they stuck to that sound, and people would cry self-parodying. I mean, what, what, what do these people want them to do? Did he want him to sound like everybody else? Did he want him to sound more bland? And what is the problem with a band sounding like themselves and moving forward in that sound? It's just lazy journalism. And it's also a cheap point to make. It pisses me off. It's also a point that is made inconsistently. If a reviewer likes a band, they will praise that band for sticking to their guns and giving fans what they want, right? But if they don't like it and they're looking for ways to slag them off, they will say things like how it all sounds the same and how they're self-parodying themselves and how they're unable to evolve. You can't have it both ways. You can't use the exact same reasons to praise one band and slag off the next. But unfortunately, that happened a lot with Big Country, and these cockwomble reviewers spewing their cod swallop like the imbeciles they are, it pisses me off. <laughs> and Wonderland did get a beating in several reviews at the time. I think a lot of reviewers found them pompous. In the same way that people later found Bono pompous, I see similarities in that criticism. And they didn't understand that with Big Country, it came from a totally different place, an opposite place, diagonally opposite to Bono. And they never found out because they judged the book by the cover. They totally judged the book by the cover. And that's what's so infuriating. None of these reviews came across as particularly informed. And that's, that's why they are left with the brown trousers. What's so ridiculous is that it wasn't even remotely the same. Uh, the reviewer said that it was soapboxy. Yeah. You know, when, when you think about someone who is soapboxy, you think of something like you 2 where somebody is preaching these giant, let's all have peace, let's all work <laughs> together and save the world. Wonderland could not be a more personal song. There's nothing yeah. even remotely soapboxy of that. When you when you get on a soapbox, you're standing up and you're you're trying to convince people of some big big uh, broad thing that you want them to do or take part in. Wonderland is about one man's you know and and his partner and and it's about his sadness and his depression and we talk about all this, but there's nothing. You know, nobody stands on a soapbox and says, "I'm depressed. I miss my <laughs> wife. I miss my family. Don't you as well." I'm an honest man. I need your love. Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. But you know, th those of you who paid uh, expecting a swine rant, congratulations! You got your money's worth today. 
Well, it, it really pisses me off. Well, it does. And it, it, it and just think of how it and we've talked about this before, but just think about how that eventually would weigh on Stewart, you know, for example. And I'm sure the whole band, but especially Stewart, the guy that writes these songs, you know, bearing your yourself like he does in this song in particular, bearing your bearing your soul and then to have some idiot saying that it's pompous, it's soapboxy, it's vapid, whatever it might be. I mean, you got you you certainly expect that on some level as a as a musician who's got that kind of platform, but to constantly get just bombarded with that um that wears you down, man. Yeah, and like I said, it's 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 not even relevant. They are judging the book by the cover. I think one review even said singing in butch tones. Where's the butch tones on Wonderland? I don't I, even I, I, Yeah, I don't even get that uh, other than just you know, people some of those early reviews did kind of talk about the quote unquote macho manly feel of of the band and Stewart's vocals were occasionally uh likened to Springsteen in the early days which I'd never saw. But I, I would even question the judging the book by the cover because it's like what what cover is big country portraying? You know, they're just, they're just four guys. Um, again, with you two, you, you had a, a band that was with Bono, especially who was right there in people's faces with the, with the white flag and jumping into the crowd all the time and climbing up the, the railing of a stage. And, you know, you could see that uh, here's, here's a band that's really trying to put themselves in your face for better or worse, but big country. I mean, Four, just four guys in a band, normal dudes. You know, it's like that. It's it's just that laziness. It's definitely lazy. It's it's only judging the book by the cover in terms of not having read the book, not really taking the time to to see what this is about. And yeah, maybe maybe the music videos has something to do with that kind of adventure, butch, uh, three wheel driving, searching for a treasure map. It might be as lazy as that, and anything that comes is kind of judged as that. When, when, when I look at the Wonderland review that I read out, it, it doesn't feel like that's the song they're reviewing. It feels no. like they're reviewing In a Big Country one more time or something like that. But um, all right, let's leave that aside. We have acknowledged that reviewers back then were imbeciles and <laughs> useless and worthless. Yes, dung heaps. So let's move on to something else. And this is kind of a, a little... Interesting little tidbit. Did you know that Wonderland was nearly used as movie music? Mm, I do re- I do recall that, yes. I can't remember the name of the film, though. I might be able to help you. I'm sure you can. It was nearly used as car chase music. That's right. In the movie Bogan on the Run. And uh, the movie is very, very hard to get, but I have obtained <laughs> some dialogue from this movie. Uh, it's uh, it was considered as car chase music in an Australian production mm. called Bogan on the Run. Interesting. The plot is basically a bogan robs a bank and spends ninety minutes trying to outrun the police. And apparently, it's edge of the seat stuff. It's like, uh, do they get him in the end? Will he get away? And I won't spoil the ending if you haven't seen it. But in the end, they sadly didn't use Wonderland. But I have obtained some early rushes where they test the suitability of Wonderland as car chase music. So now let's hear it. Let's hear it. <gasps> Oi, you lot! This is a hold up. Hand over all your money. Oi, you prick! Don't touch my mullet. 
my lovely assistant Sheila is going to go around with a bag and you're going to put all your cash and valuables in it. Shit, which one of you drongos called the cops? Sheila, grab the cash, quick. We got a skedaddle. <laughs> Sheila, run, you drongo. I told you you shouldn't have worn moccasins. Bloody hell. Sheila, you got a Bundy and Coke there. Your mouth's drier than a dead dingo's donger. Ah, crap, the cops are gaining on us. Jesus, they're in a BMW. Oh, they're still never going to beat my fucking hot-ass Commodore. Go baby, go! These bastard coppers aren't going to catch us. Turn the radio on, will you, Dale? What, what song is this? <laughs> Bloody dickhead. All right, that that was from Bogan on the Run, everyone. Uh, yeah, great stuff. Maybe Bogans will uh, be able to set the record straight because I don't think it was shown outside Australia. Who knows if it was even shown in Australia? Uh, so the last thing uh, I have to say about Wonderland, you might have something too, but before we dive into the song itself, the, the last tidbit, it was a heartwarming post on Instagram from uh, the 1st of June, 2019. It was made by Steve Lillywhite, who met some super fans of his in the Tokyo airport, and they had brought a whole bunch of vinyl sleeves of albums that he had produced and asked him to sign them. So he did, and he thought that was so funny, and they had so many albums that he, he videotaped it. There was, there was obviously Big Country, but also U2 and The Smiths, The Pogues, World Party, Peter Gabriel, Susie and the Banshees, The Rolling Stones. Johnny Thunders, quite a few, as, 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 you, as you imagine. And when he got to the Wonderland 12-inch, he wrote a very special message on it before he signed it. He wrote, this is my favorite 12-inch mix that I ever did. And I was just thinking, how cool is that? And it just proves that his work with Big Country is possibly as special to him as it is to us. And it's just heartwarming to see that. So... He could have written that on anything. And, you know, you heard the list of artists that was there and even more. But that was the one that was his favorite. Yeah, I remember when that was uh, brought up. And um, that was so great to hear. Absolutely oh. so great to hear. And he's popped in occasionally on the Bogan on the Run website on Facebook, Facebook page. Yes. And he's talked about the band. And we mentioned last time him saying that he would love to remix Steel Town. Yeah, it's great. It's obvious that he still has great positive feelings for the band and what he did with them. So that's that's nice to hear for sure. And I'll just start getting on that remix. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah, please. But uh, in any case, that's a much better note to leave it at than those imbecile reviewers. I think Steve Lillewhite's opinion is uh, means more to us here. Yeah. 
Hi, Tom. Hi, Svein. It's Mark John Willows from the northeast of England. Um, I just want to talk about Wonderland. I first saw Big Country Live on 6th of December 1986 on the Sea Tour. Um, that concert, amazing concert, was the first time I'd seen them, but the only song I didn't know that they played that night was Wonderland. Now, that's because in 85, someone had let, lent me a copy of The Crossing, a green one, of course, um, and over the sort of the, that year, I'd got a hold of a copy of The Crossing. I'd also bought Steel Town, and I was ready to pounce when The Seer came out. But I'd somehow missed Wonderland. Um, now, what happened then was, I was trying to work out pre-internet days, what was this? Was it a single? Someone someone told me it was a mini LP, and I'm thinking, oh, is it? Right, okay. I tried to get it, couldn't find it anywhere. I managed to pick up a few singles, like East of Eden, 12-inch, In a Big Country, 12-inch, Harvest Home, 12-inch. Um, but in those days, when you missed a, a record in the shops, you sort of missed them. Once they were out of the charts, they were gone. Um, so anyway, I had a trip to London with school or college, whatever it was, and I saw what I thought was the 12-inch of Wonderland in, in a big record shop in London. So I bought it. Now, it turns out that that was the Canadian EP. So that's a six-track EP. Now, bear in mind, when I got this home, it was the first time I'd heard Wonderland properly. It was the first time I'd heard the extended version of Chance. It was the very first time I'd ever heard All Fall Together, which remains my favourite big country song and the best song ever written. Uh, first time I'd heard The Crossing, the track The Crossing. The first time I'd heard Angle Park, with the exception of, of course, having heard it on the VHS of the Barrowland concert. And the first time I'd heard Heart and Soul. So that was a pretty monumental group of songs to find after the seer came out and it was absolutely amazing um i just want to sort of yeah kind of make that point that the, it was it, the format really sold it for me because it was just such a wonderful bunch of songs to sort of have out the blue including all fall together which to me is has such heftiness and power and the most amazing lyrics um about Wonderland, the song itself, yeah, I love it. Uh, the 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 line, the guitar line that Stuart plays live, that's got a really nice sound. That that sort of chunky guitar on the single, um, the way it's produced and recorded is really really good. Drums drums sound great. Video was great. Um, yeah, I, I just really really love it. But I want to make the point that yeah, the mini LP, what a treat that was. Since then, of course, I've got the clear vinyl, whatever, and this seven-inch double pack, and this, that, and the other, and the one with the Lost Patrol, and whatever it is. I've got all the rest. Cheers, anyway. Thanks very much. Bye. Hi, Spine and Tom. It's Den Hayward from South Wales in the UK, responding to your request for a speak pipe about Wonderland. To begin with, although I'm not sure if he sent you one himself, on behalf of my big country brother, Adrian Nugara, I'd just like to put it on the Great Divide podcast record that Wonderland is the greatest song ever written by anyone ever. I'll just repeat that. Wonderland is the greatest song ever written by anyone ever. <laughs> Seriously, though, it is an amazing song, both lyrically and musically, and it's always been a firm favourite for me. The combination of the guitars, rolling drums and Stuart's amazing vocal delivery of such meaningful and heartfelt lyrics makes this a very special song that I will always love, along with the video. 
My podcast journey didn't begin in earnest until the first COVID lockdown in the UK back in March 2020. But since then, I've actually listened to them all, bar the last one, twice. I believe that your request for a speak pipe is the first you've put out since I joined the family. So I wanted to also take the opportunity to thank you both for all you've done and continue to do to provide fans with the episodes. The podcast for me provided a real lifeline during very difficult times and I'll always be grateful to you both and the Big Country Global family. Thank you for your time, stay safe and stay alive. So, Wonderland, the song itself, um, that was a great setup for the EP, for the context, and it, it's, it's got me ready to talk about the lyrics, too. Um, I, think, I think just to give a little more context about what the band was going through during this time, and, and as, as always, when we talk about Stewart's lyrics, um, some of them are, are pretty obvious and discernible, and you can easily understand what he's saying, and others... You can't. So I always preface this when we talk about these albums is that this is just my interpretation, the way I choose to interpret it. I don't necessarily think that, you know, it's a given, of course, obviously with this interpretation. But judging from all we know about Stewart and, and his other work and the, the other things that he wrote, you can have a good idea for the mentality that he had when he wrote lyrics. So I'm just going to take that into the equation when I write about this. So. The first thing is just to look at that title, Wonderland, and then to look at the time period when this was written. Um, during the time when Big Country was coming off of amazing success. And success that probably was beyond Stewart's wildest dreams. Um, I mean, the first album was gigantic. Uh, and not just that, but they had had a great first album. They had Grammy nominations uh, or a Grammy nomination. They they had come off an amazing tour of America, which was like the promised land for a lot of these bands. Um, you know, if you, if you can't make it in America, then you're not considered like a worldwide success for better or worse. And the band completely made it in America. They had a great charting single. They had a great tour. They had just appeared on, Saturday Night Live, uh, a huge show in America. Um, they had met many of their of their idols. I, I was reading um, in some of the early country clubs around that time, and they were talking about the band meeting Bob Dylan and Tom Petty. And I'm not saying Tom Petty was an idol of Stuart Adamson, but 
they were they were meeting some idols and some people who were just contemporaries um, and who are now their peers, people they probably heard on the radio and now they're their peers in the music business. Um, they they had met uh, other celebrities like Muhammad Ali. There was an interesting story about the band meeting Muhammad Ali in New York and uh, Muhammad Ali was with Stewart and his son Callum. And he apparently picked up Callum in the hotel lobby and called him a future champ or something like that and how how happy Stuart was for that. So, you know, cool things like this. There, there's a story about Mark Brzecki in his hometown suddenly signing autographs for the milkman, for the postman, and for neighbors. And apparently this was all the result of his father, um, who lived nearby too, who was showing everyone in town the gold disc that his son had received for the crossing. And so now Mark Brzecki was, you know, this, this celebrity, um, not just abroad, but in his hometown, he's signing autographs. So things were, were just exploding for the band. They were, they were probably making um, a good bit of money for, for once, you know, um, doing well on that front, uh, getting the, the reactions that Stuart wanted from when he started the band. So, it must have really seemed in some way like a wonderland of success for the band. I mean, to be thrust into this. Um, so the way I look at this song is that that title could have easily been, been Stewart's thoughts about the success he was experiencing. But in true Stewart fashion, he takes that and he turns that inward and he turns it into something much more melancholy and and he he's he's kind of turning that idea and in the lyrics of this song he's really looking at what it, what is wonderland you know is it is it this success that i'm having or is it the person that i want to be with my family my wife my th these these parts of life that really mean so much to me and i think um so there's some interesting quotes that I that I read in a in an article from the Courier, a UK magazine, and apparently they unearthed a 1985 interview that they said was with Stuart Adamson that that was in their vaults. Um, I wish they had released the entire interview, but they just gave little little quotes from the interview. So this was in 1985 after Steel Town came out, um, so before the third album. But Stuart talks about things that I think shed some light onto the lyrics of this song. You know, he says, my upbringing instilled values in me that have never gone. They're the reason I've been able to keep my feet on the ground. I like to boost what I believe to be basic good human values, honesty, the worth of the family and the community, and so on. So that word honesty, um, obviously that comes back to these lyrics. I am an honest man. Um, so let's just look at him real quick, starting from the beginning. I'm not going to pour over each line, but if you could feel how I must feel, the winds of quiet change, if you could see what I must see still hidden in the rain. But when the thunder rolls, it comes and covers up my soul. You know, we've talked about in the past some of Stewart's lyrics, especially related to storms and and weather-related types of things, um, kind of being a metaphor for his own battles with depression. And I think that's what he's writing about here. Um, the winds of quiet change in a way that's kind of, to me, sort of downplaying maybe 
the what was not quiet change that was happening in his life, but what was very loud change, very sudden change, very huge change. Um, if you want to look at it that way, as if this is a, a, a change in his life and, and this new level of existence that he has worked so hard for, and now he's achieved this success, but he's still feeling these things. He, he, it, the success is not something that's making him into a different person. It's not necessarily something that's, that's giving him happiness, you know, pure happiness from, um, obviously he's happy and he's happy to have achieved what he's achieved, but is it the kind of lasting happiness that he's looking for? And I think, I think this line, these, this first verse kind of leads into that, especially when he says, if you could see what I must see still hidden in the rain, um, and again, this is just one of those guesses as to what he could refer, be referring to here. But you often hear about, um, and there are, there are a number of different ways this line has been used in movies and things like that. But the idea of tears being hidden in the rain, um, tears are things that you don't see when it's raining because they, they, they're covered by the rain. And I kind of always took this line as a reference to that, you know, a reference to sadness that maybe some people can't see because it's hidden in the rain, what that rain might be um, here. You know, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but certainly it could be a, it, it could be the, the rain of, of just all this success that's pouring down on him. Or it could be again, another metaphor for more straightforward metaphor for depression or what he's struggling with. But in any case, that first verse really immediately sets the stage. This isn't going to be a happy song. This is not a wonderland of pure happiness and pure bliss. There's a dual meaning here. There's sarcasm in a way here that we really see toward the end. Um, but there's also purity here. And the purity comes with the person he's singing about, the person who takes his hand and who's with him in Wonderland. Um, I have to think that most likely, judging from where Stuart was in his life at that point, just starting a family, he had young, a young son. Um, Kirsten was probably born around this time. can't remember the exact date. Uh, but we, we know, and we've talked about this so many times, there's no, there's no point in laboring over it again, but we know how much Stuart loved his family. We know how much he was a family man, that he, how much he wanted to be with his family and how much it hurt him at times, despite the amazing success he had to constantly be on the road, to constantly be away from them. He, he missed the birth of his first child, Callum, because he was on the road. Um, he didn't want that to happen with his second, but in, in record collector, um, a record collector article, a number of years later, this is actually talking about the seer period, but it's still relevant here. Um, Bruce says Stuart was having a stressful time being away from his family at that point. And he's talking about the time right before the seer. And he says for the past three years, it had been full on. It was like bang, bang, bang. And we know that he was dealing with that even earlier, even earlier uh, during the, um, after the, the first album, there were, there were, there was talk about, management wanting to put them on a different tour or, or a different show that they thought was really vital to the band's success. And 
Stuart was like, no, I'm not doing it. I want to be with my family. Forget it. And they convinced him, come on, you know, doing this show is going to be big for the band. And so he did. But that kind of thing was was clearly a a constant motif in Stuart's life. And I think that's what this song is referencing. You know, we're, we're getting we're getting something that's really personal in a way that definitely some songs on the crossing were, were that way as well. You know, some, some like inwards and even some of in a big country and, and some others, but there was, there were also a lot of outward songs in some ways on the crossing that were speaking more of world issues in poetic ways or historic events. But here we've got a really personal song. And that's again, why I'm just, you know, I, I'm just shocked that someone would call this soapboxy because this is this is a person really giving you insight into his inner brain and his innermost feelings during a time when he's probably experiencing the most success he would ever achieve in his life from a career standpoint. I mean, this was big country's high point in, in their existence. Uh, they would never be this big again, and they would never be this well-known again. And at this point, he writes a song like this um, that really gets back to that original courier quote where he says these values that, of, that he's had have never, that have never gone the worth of the family um, and basic good, hum, basic good human values. And that's what he's relying on back here. He's seeing the success for what it is. It's great. It's, it's a personal accomplishment. It's a career accomplishment. It gives him a, a voice and a platform that will help him throughout the remainder of his life to get his songs out there and get his point of view out there. But it's not what's going to define him as a person. And um, you will take my hand and be with me in Wonderland. That's his Wonderland, is being with his family, being with his wife, Sandra, at the time. Um, he needs the love of you. That's what he needs. I feel the winter, too. And you can take that as being, I feel the winter, too, as in I feel it and you feel it. We both feel it. You can certainly take it that way. Or you could look at it like he, yes, he is enjoying the success, but he also feels the winter too. He feels the winter that's always there. This this sadness this, that he fights, this depression that he fights, and there's that give and take. Um, I think I think the next portion of the song is a little bit more difficult to fit into that interpretation because it seems a little bit more like, um, well, let, let me just read it. If you could hear what I must hear, then nothing would replace. The 50 years of sweat and tears that never left a trace. But when I look at you, I see you feel the same way too. So this this line, this verse almost seems like it's more referencing working working class people in general in, in a way. Um, the 50 years of sweat and tears that never left a trace. That, always, that line always puzzled me a bit. Like never left a trace of what exactly? You could take that in a, in a variety of ways. You could take it like, 50 years of sweat and tears never amounted to anything, never amounted to anything good. People worked their entire lives so hard for what? Um, and if you could hear what I must hear, then nothing could, nothing would replace the 50 years of sweat and tears that never left a trace. Um, definitely among the more abstract lines in this song, but I, I it seems to be reflecting back to, something that he would be singing about on the next album, especially Steel Town, you know, the working, the working men, the working class. And it's almost, it's almost as if he got to that second verse and he 
took a step back a little bit and maybe almost as if he was saying, you know what, I'm, I'm showing myself a little too much here. Let me take this a step back and make this a little bit more broad um, of, a, of a verse that reflects more than just me here. Um, whether that was done subconsciously, I don't know, or consciously, who knows. Um, again, I, when, you, when you really dissect lyrics like this, uh, line by line, it, it's, it's almost not fair because when people typically write lyrics like this, they're not necessarily pouring over every line. Now, what does this next line mean, or what will this next line mean? Often it comes from a, a subconscious place, and they put things down, and then they look at it. They feel like it sounds good. It, it reflects what they're thinking in a in a more obscure way, maybe. Um, and they and as Stewart himself has said, sometimes he doesn't understand songs until a couple of years after he's written them, and he looks back and he's like, "Yeah, I get this now." Um, so it could be the case here in in some respects too. But I, I think you know he's talking about him, himself being a working man. He always viewed himself as working class. He certainly was in the band. But he constantly is referring back to this, I need the love of you, and I feel the winter too. And, and this song really is, is a love song to me. It's, um, there's nothing soapboxy about it. It's, it's a beautiful, pure love song that reflects what Stuart holds to be the most important thing in life. And that is this family bond, this love that he has with his wife and his children. And then taking that a little bit further in some of these other verses and references with his community, with, with the kind of people that he most relates to the, the people that he was brought up with this working class value um, system that he feels, as I read in that quote, keeps his feet on the ground. And he brings that up in the, in the next verse too. You know, you, you still remember other days when every head was high. I watched that pride be torn apart beneath the darker sky with innocence within ourselves, we sing the same old song. So there's kind of a resignation in this last verse, and we get back to that pride that grows in hardship line, which comes in Tall Ships Go later. Um, he, he sings about pride a lot, and he sings about pride in hardship and pride being tested. And um, you've got that here. You know, again, kind of more of a broader reference to the types of people and the types of things he would be writing about this, this idea of the working class having their pride stripped away. Um, and then I think the last line of this verse is interesting too, with innocence within ourselves, we sing the same old song. There's almost a resignation there that what we're just, we're just going through the motions or, or we're repeating the same circle of life that continues to go around um, where People like us are the ones who have to struggle the most. And we just are singing the same song that others have sung before us and that others will sing after us. And it's because they have that, that innocence, that, that sense of innocence about them. They maybe, that maybe is an, an innocence that he wants to preserve um, away from the kind of things that he's, as he becomes more successful as he sees more of the world, as he sees more of the business, even in a way he sees how things are structured in a way that doesn't really align with this value system that he keeps talking about that he grew up with. And, um, I, I think, I think 
pride be torn apart beneath the darker sky is is almost a uh an omen type of lyric when you look at the big picture of the trajectory of the band's career at least with Stuart um you know you you did get that sense and we kind of referenced it a little bit with some of these reviews and and what would be coming in these reviews uh throughout the you know more and more throughout the years these this thing that they would latch on to every song sounds the same uh soapbox lyrics empty empty lyrics trying to be just like you two whatever it might be you know the band took such a beating um in the music business and and even internally with things that they'd started to deal with in uh, the seer period um and i know that Stewart himself has said that a lot of his pride was shaken at some point where he didn't even know why he was writing certain things or what he was supposed to write um and he was trying to write for other people so when i when i read that line today it, it's it's almost a sad commentary on kind of some of the aspects not, and not to be too doom and gloom because it, it wasn't all like that obviously but it's it it kind of reflects on the career side of things too almost to come but the, the biggest line and the last thing the last portion that i'll talk about is the last line where he says again he doesn't say you will take my hand and be with me in wonderland again he says you will take my hand and make believe it's wonderland that line always sends shiver, sends shivers up my spine and it does just even reading it because it's such a powerful line and it's such a it's such a wonderful and sad and powerful and beautiful twist in the lyrics it's making believe it's wonderland because and again you you know it's open to interpretation what he means there but it, it could it could reflect on the fact that maybe even then there were issues with his relationship where he was with this person but he knew there were problems and we'll just pretend everything's okay we'll pretend it's wonderland or you could take it as okay we're together we we love each other we know that outside in the real world things aren't necessarily what we want it to be but for now while we're together we can just pretend that we are in a wonderland and not worry about the real world until we have to go back to it until i have to go back on tour until i have to leave you again for now we can just pretend that we're in wonderland you could take it that way that's kind of the way i choose to take it um but however you take it there's certainly an implied sense of menace and trouble there that whatever this wonderland is that he's in with this person who's taking his hand, it's temporary or it's not completely real. It's, it's not a completely real reflection of what the world is like. Um, and there's a, a, a lot of sense of struggle and fight and this desire to find and maintain what, what you feel is the most important part of yourself and life no matter what is happening around you. And um, I just think it's, it's, it's an amazing song. It's lyrically, it, uh, it, it touches on so many different aspects and so many deep and interesting topics uh, that especially sort of shine through when you look back at Stewart's life and you look at his entire career and you can see so many seeds of all of that in this song and um 
it's just a, to me, it's it's just a beautifully written love song from a lyrical standpoint, and I think it's one of Stewart's best. Uh, it's it's just um, like so many of his songs. It's got this inspiring shake your shake your hand in the air feeling with the with the shouts and the haws and the whoa woes that come in that everyone sings along to. But when you really look at the lyrics, they're they're dark. And uh, there's a lot of darkness in this, both both literally <laughs> when he talks about dark and darker skies and the thunder rolling in, but also just the overall sense of this tune. So I think it speaks a lot to what's to come on Steel Town, just this genius level of lyric writing with Stuart um, that to me during Steel Town and, and it, it starts to, to, to lessen a bit on the seer, but I think with steel town, the crossing and then into steel town through wonderland, the bridge of wonderland, you get some of his most genius lyric writing that he would ever, ever participate in. And I think this song, this great, beautiful love song is a sterling example of that. Yeah. And uh, you, you got to the same conclusion that I, that I did that there's a lyrical link to steel town as well, but um, okay. You touched this yourself and I was thinking about it in preparation. Sometimes we really go to town on our lyric discussions. Turn every stone, go line by line, look at it from multiple angles. And with some songs, we need to do that to properly explore everything that is found within. I'm not sure we needed the biggest kind of searchlight this time, because it's right there. You just need to really look at it and, and see it for what it is. Uh, at the same time, I also have our interview with Mark at the back of my mind, where he admitted that Sometimes they would write cool lines on pieces of paper, throw them up in the air, and then just see how they landed and try to arrange them. And that's how they wrote some lyrics on the crossing. And I don't think we opened for that possibility at all when we did the crossing deep dives. We took every song at face value because that's, that's what we can do. What if Wonderland was written that way? What if they wrote things quickly? We know they were under pressure. They were pushed into the studio. To push something out, they had to settle for the music. I don't know if they felt like they had to settle for the lyrics as well. It certainly doesn't look that way. All of these things you can think of, but I think this song deserves to be looked at properly. If the reviewers of the time didn't do it, we will certainly do it now. Certainly in the context of Big Country, even though these lyrics were finished quicker than normal, that doesn't mean necessarily that, that they were hastily thrown together. And especially in the context of the early years when the lyrics were more mystical and allegorical, uh, this is slightly less than that. And perhaps that is a good thing. It makes it an easier song to connect with. And thinking that this was meant to be a single, and that is a bit of a pressure. You want to make it uh, sort of available, easily to interpret, easy for people to, to dig into. So the first thing you notice as you just look at the lyrics, very lovely still very poetic and just phrases like the winds of quiet change. And that's pretty lovely. And you still remember other days when every head was high, a lovely way of describing something, which we'll get to. So um, this man is talking to their significant other. I assume it's to a woman, although the gender of the other person is not revealed. So this could very well be sung to another man, but given that the song has Stuart's voice, it comes from him. And this is how he always wrote, from a man to a woman, very often his own wife. This is how I've always taken it, a man talking to the woman he loves. And he is sharing a number of things with her, 
concerns, worries, laying out how he feels, being honest. But the overriding thing is that although he acknowledges that he has his issues, overall, if she is with him, that alleviates a lot of that. Maybe not all of that, but a lot of that. And it's a song about laying one's cards on the table, saying, this is how I am without you, and this is how much better I can be with you. And, and that in itself is great. And that's what makes this a love song and uh, a very sweet message to give to your significant other. Each verse reveals a new thing. The first verse is about having fears. He thinks, if you could feel how I must feel, the winds of quiet change. Things are changing around us, but the winds of change are quiet. They're not obvious, but he notices them. He feels them. And also, if you could see what I must see, still hidden in the rain. Again, it's not obvious. It's hidden. He sees it coming, and it concerns him. But it does not overwhelm him until it gets too much, which is when the thunder rolls. He thinks, but when the thunder rolls, it comes and covers up my soul. So sometimes things get too much, and uh, the darkness is more absolute. It takes control of him. So this is a man talking about his worries, his anxieties, his depression. It's there, but it's not a constant. Sometimes it overwhelms, not all the time. But there is something that helps, and the chorus always gets back to this, making them the focal points, making the taking of your hand, the help, the redemption, the thing that makes everything better. And as the song goes, it does not make it completely fine, but it makes it better. So when he sings, you'll take my hand and be with me in Wonderland. I am an honest man. I need the love of you. You talked about all of this. There, there's nothing more to add. Uh, I am a working man. I feel the winter too. He's spoken about this before, that winter is used as an allegory for depression. This was a normal kind of allegory. He used it in a lot of songs. And we have spoken about this in previous deep dives, but maybe it's worth bringing it up here because this is one of those crucial songs where it's front and center and in the chorus and repeated quite a bit. So is this the first song in the big country discography that contains the word winter used in this way? No, it's not. There are three songs before this one mentioning winter, which is Harvest Home in a big country and a storm. The use of winter is not always depression, but there are several examples, like Harvest Home, who heard a winter calling. In a big country speaks of, I can live and breathe and see the sun in wintertime about finding the hope in those difficult, dark situations. And in Wonderland, obviously, I feel the winter too. In Rain Dance, he mentions, we will find a newborn year as the winter crashes down. Can you feel the winter? <laughs> it's right there in the title. Feel it cold across your heart. He's not singing about the season there. We need to do a deep dive on that song at some point. Uh, there are some songs that just needs that recognition. And uh, dive into me. I had a chill in my heart like the start of the winter. A line that always gives me a chill in my heart. It's, it's, it's lovely. And there are many of these, these examples of winter used for depression. Sometimes it's used differently, like a couple of examples where it's used uh, an allegory for disaster. Winter sky refers to the nuclear threat, the nuclear winter, if you will. And winter fire speaks about anything from small to large disaster of personal or global significance. And then you have more literal winters, like in a storm and it says the winter closed in and the crowds filled the sky. That's that's more literally meant. Restless natives, uh, you have through summer sun and winter snow. 
you lose your dreams, you have covered up in ivory wool and logic fails with the winter fools. We have many examples of this. And uh, Wonderland is probably my go-to example for this. If someone brings up in the discussion how he wrote about these things and used allegories for it, Wonderland is the one that readily comes to mind. So it's it's part of the song very much, and it's part of the makeup of the character. And, and I call it character based on uh, the song in total. I don't think this is a blow-by-blow blow autobiographical song. I'm kind of careful in assuming that always. Verse 2 and 3 kind of make that clear. He, uh, he no doubt put a lot of himself in the song. Uh, you can always find a lot of Stuart in his songs, but there's more than that too. He put other things too. And that becomes clear in the second verse, where if the first verse was about having fears, the second verse definitely mentions having a hard life. That is more the challenges you go through, the hard work. It goes, if you could hear what I must hear, then nothing would replace the 50 years of sweat and tears that never left a trace. This is an interesting verse. He is uh, either talking about himself, although in character, which means that the narrator is not a young man, like 50 years of sweat and tears. Um, if that is himself, he's talking about a life lived here and a hard life at that, with physical, manual labor, which wears you out, or things that, you know, a burden, not easy. But he could also be talking about a people or an event something that happened that several people had to live down in the years since, including people who were born since then, this is not explicit. And you can't really garner from the lyrics alone what he refers to. You, you either need to know what Stuart is writing about here and apply that knowledge, or if he's writing about a local community or something specific to where he comes from, you need to be aware of that yourself and then apply that. But I think the meaning of this phrase is still pretty clear even without knowing exactly what those 50 years refer to, because the focus is really not on the 50 years. The focus is a long time of how nothing would replace the sweat and tears that never left a trace. That is really the crux and the point here. And it's going to take something pretty unique for 50 years of sweat and tears to never leave a trace. What he's saying is, it's worth it. It didn't break me. It didn't ruin me. This was a livelihood. It may have been hard, but it was a good life. And it goes back to that pride that comes from hardship that would come in a song in the near future at this point. And honest work. I feel this falls a bit into that, that it was worth it because it was a shared existence with the people he loves. And, and the next phrase goes, but when I look at you, I see you feel the same way too, which is another way of acknowledging that shared existence. It wasn't easy. There were sweat and tears, but they didn't leave a trace. You could also look at it negatively. We always should. Um, you could look at it like the work meant nothing. It didn't impact anything. It didn't leave a trace. It didn't impact society. It didn't help anyone. I'm not sure that fits with the overall message of the song about facing hardship together. And while acknowledging that there still are issues, things are better because they face things together. So ultimately, it all comes back to you will take my hand and be with me in Wonderland. So. I think the song is pretty earnest. The song is about a couple. He's pledging his love and devotion. He's mentioning how things get better together, but it's not 100% perfect. And there are many things in this song that points to not 100% perfect, but it's manageable and better because they hold each other's hand in Wonderland. 
as the chorus goes on, the point about being an honest working man who needs the love of you, their love that keeps him going, but he's no stranger to having those dark thoughts sometimes. It's a good question, really, how much of himself Stuart put in the song, because he probably saw himself exactly like that, an honest working man who needed the love of his wife and family, but feeling that winter too. So um, <laughs> it's very interesting to start digging into the layers. Let's look at the third and final verse. If the first verse is about having fears and the second one about having a demanding life, the third is more looking back. You still remember other days when every head was high. I watched that pride be torn apart beneath a darker sky. I mentioned the throwback to the pride that grows in hardship, honest working men, which builds those communities and creates something that matters. And those type of people can definitely hold their heads high with pride in their accomplishments which I think the second verse refers to with the sweat and tears that never left a trace. But here that is torn apart. I watched that pride be torn apart beneath a darker sky. That phrase signals a change. These proud working men are no longer able to sustain a living the way they could in these other days when they could hold their head high. And I'm thinking Stuart was foreshadowing topics here that could be further explored on the coming album. These proud working men having to perhaps abandon their communities, take up work in factories, soulless work that would crush their spirit, instead of the lush communities that you contribute to and you feel proud in, uh, about your accomplishments. Here you have steel mills and factories. And again, as the phrase goes, I watched that pride be torn apart beneath a darker sky. Why is the sky darker? Is it because of the smoke from the factories? Or perhaps that's too literal could just be a darker sky allegorically because it's a less hopeful sky because people found themselves taking up a different type of work which tore apart the pride they used to have in their work during those mentioned earlier days when every head was high. So still, although the work is hard and soul-crushing, you can carry that innocence with you. You're doing what you must in order to survive, to provide for your family, and there is pride in that. If you provide from your family, you're doing probably something all right. Uh, so the song says, with innocence within ourselves, we sing the same old song. I always took this to mean that the man's spirit is not broken. He's still an honest working man. He has no need to feel ashamed about the situation he's in. And crucially, he's still with his wife. He has a significant other. And she understands and appreciates his work and sacrifice. And he understands hers. And with that, they both have their wonderland, despite a difficult situation. So this is why I get quite happy that musically, the chorus and several instrumental sections are so explosive and almost triumphant that they are celebrating those moments of bliss. That there are some happy moments. There are some happy turns. There, there is some acknowledgement that things can get better. And the guy is managing quite well in spite of the situation he's in, in spite of the troubles that sometimes uh, can take over. But uh, the interesting line is when you will take my hand and make believe it's Wonderland. This is the section where we need to consider the possibility that a more positive reading is wrong. Could be an ironic title. We are working hard. I have doubts and fears. I feel the winter too. Sweat and tears will you not trace. Is it ironic? Wonderland, it's a bitter statement worn down from all the years. Let's make believe. I really don't read the song that way. 
I, I just don't because there are too many other acknowledgements of something positive in it. He's still a working man. He still feels honest. He still has the love of you. Uh, so even though the winter is there and sometimes the thunder darkens his soul and it's working under a darkened sky, you, you, you can really go to town on how the song is ironic or induced with dark humor or just plain dark and a testament to depression, but that doesn't add up to other parts. So there's definitely room for a good debate, uh, but I think uh, the song definitely embraced the positive. It's a song coming from a challenge, but looking to the positive, rather than a song about the positive, which is breaking down into desperation. So that is ultimately how I take it. And uh, I'm kind of glad I take it that way, because otherwise I probably would feel a little less about the song. I, I enjoy the joyous nature. I enjoy celebrating the victories. And I think this song is about celebrating those victories, little as they may be, and the battle might still be going on, but it's uh, it's not a hopeless battle. So this song definitely falls into the lyrical themes of The Crossing. Uh, that, that honest and hardworking man, sweat on his brow, doing the best he can, managing in spite of a hard situation. It's typical big country metaphors and the things to put the song in the context of, but also acknowledging that it's tough. And this this definitely hints to lyrical themes that were to come on the next album, which definitely looks at things from a bleaker point of view than Wonderland does. I mean, Wonderland can be taken bleakly enough, but we know where Steel Town goes. <laughs> That's sometimes very bleak. So uh, with these men needing to move away from their community-based work into more soulless factories and maybe conveyor belt approaches and harder manual labor and more soul-crushing things. I'm not sure if this song was meant to be contrived just like that, but at least in hindsight, it's very hard not to look at this as a lyrical bridge between The Crossing and Steel Town. So it, um, it fits very nicely. And definitely there is some evolution in both lyrical themes and music, despite what certain reviewers and interviewers would say. So uh, that's that. I think we have crushed the hopes of ending this on 80 minutes because we still have to talk about the music. Yeah, I never had any hopes for that. So they were crushed long ago. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad you still had that hope. Maybe that accounts for your uh, positive interpretation of Wonderland, whereas mine is is negative. But it's not a positive interpretation, but it's it's really a middle ground. It's really a middle ground, but I think it's it's trying to look at things half glass full. Yeah, I I, I would I could see that, and, and I don't see it as like a there is no hope type of song either. Just uh, just a typical dark Stuart tinge. There is a tinge, yes. The desperation would come. Exactly, but yeah, that's great. That lots of good points there, and um, you're right. Uh, I think we covered the the lyrics very very thoroughly and and as you say maybe too thoroughly in some ways from my standpoint because there are a lot of very direct lines there. Hello, this is John Lewis from Sacramento, California, the land that rain forgot. On the other hand, Wonderland is four songs I inevitably associate with winter sky, even more than winter sky. Uh, the title song, it all fall together for the direct mention of feeling the winter and black skies in the rain, respectively. 
but it's the other two, Angle Park and The Crossing, that create the atmosphere. I use the word urgency to describe a lot of early big country. There's a sense of needing to get somewhere and pushing through obstacles. Angle Park drives forward with the bass and then cries out with the guitars. It also has some of my favorite lyrics, which to this day I can't decide if they are poetic genius or just some random images like a dream that leaves you scratching your head. Lights, dim, statues, grim, sad clowns parade. I'll go with genius. The Crossing is a more heady song about British colonialism, I assume. But it has that driving force like uh, Close Action or Poro Man, uh, two of my favorite songs. And the extended repetitive outro, it's hardly makes sense to call it that, takes up nearly three minutes of the song, is a flight over vastness, if that even makes sense. When I first got the Wonderland EP, I listened to The Crossing over and over sometimes trying to parse out the lyrics in the days before the book of lyrics uh, and because i didn't have the cash to buy the wonderland songbook when i found it in a music store once uh, a regret to this day um, but uh, mostly i just imagined myself escaping somewhere else a bird in flight or uh, something of that nature my poor parents also had to listen to it over and over because I broke headphones left and right. Uh, it's funny too, but when I started studying Welsh, I came across the word hiraith, which is often translated as longing or homesickness. But everything I've read says it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, Mike Peters can scream hiraith all he wants at the end of the rock. But for me, the four songs on the Wonderland EP do more to enca encapsulate that feeling I think that the word is trying to get to than any of Peter's wailing. Uh, the Wonderland EP is a true work of art and never far from my mind. Hello, fellow Big Country fans. This is Craig Clark, recording from sunny Gig Harbor, Washington, the Pacific Northwest. So my memory of Wonderland is, is the third Big Country song I had ever heard, and I had already been a big fan of seeing big country video of in a big country and fields of fire on friday night videos just like tom and when i saw the video and heard the 12 inch version of wonderland which is what i heard first i was absolutely uh in love with the band and, and their music and ended up buying their cassette of wonderland and uh really loved the artwork it just really illustrated the the sound and the picture I had in my mind of what big country music would look like and loved all fall together with the Ebo and the military drums. Uh, and of course the crossing, I thought that was uh, surprising that there was a song called the crossing, but not on the crossing album, but thought it was kind of cool that it wasn't on there and uh, absolutely fell in love with that. Um, another experience with, Wonderland that some may be able to relate to is that I started playing guitar uh, in about 1984-ish. And um, one day at my music store where I took guitar lessons, there was a guitar tab book for Wonderland. And this couldn't have been a better uh, find than that was at that time in my life. So uh, I bought that, of course, and learned 
I'll fall together and Angle Park and try to learn the crossing and Wonderland never quite mastered those. But there was also a song in there called Balcony that I hadn't heard of before and uh, couldn't really find it anywhere. And um, tried to figure out what it would sound like by, by playing it. But eventually I uh, was able to get a used cassette of the movie um, that it was part of the soundtrack for. And, Wondered if uh, any uh, other fans happened to have that guitar tab book or if Spine or Tom, you ever had that book or the Crossing piano book? Uh, or did you try to figure it out by ear, which I know you did because you both had covers on that music to move mountains by cassette back in, in the 90s. But that's all for now. So feed the people and stay alive. Yeah, so let's let's jump right into the music. Um and I definitely won't be as long-winded on this portion because I think the music is pretty direct as well. Um it, it's interesting that comment from Stuart saying it was dense and and again, I take that as him referring to the production values of the song because it is a a pretty heavily layered track for a single. And it's a it's a wonderful single. What a what a great single to be released. I mean, it, it speaks to the time period, and I think into this new type of music that was coming out with with the big music as as it had been dubbed uh, with U two and the Alarm, Simple Minds, Big Country, Water Boys, even um, stuff that the 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 studios and the industry and the music business didn't quite know what to make of it just yet. And so I think there was a little more leniency um, for some of these things, because as long as it was selling, as long as people were buying, as long as people were interested, bands had a lot more leeway. You would never get a single like this 10 years later, maybe even less than that. This is a song with, uh, even though many of the lyrics are direct by big country standards, they're certainly not the kind of lyrics you would see in typical singles around around any time. Really, they're they're much more th- deeply thought out lyrics and much more open to interpretation. And then the music, oh my gosh, it it, it does ask it, it it definitely shows what's coming in Steel Town to an even an even greater degree of so many guitar overdubs, so many layers, such a big, gigantic, um, dense sound. And there's more space in this than there is on Steel Town, um, for sure. But it's, it's starting, you're starting to get that sense of what's, what's to come. And there's definitely a connective thread between this song and the songs on Steel Town. And it was produced by Steve Lillywhite, um, who did, a phenomenal job as he as he did on the both of those first two full length albums and this one as well. Um, it starts out with that great riff, which was written by Bruce, uh, which was later many people would say was later stolen in a way by NXS for the song New Sensation. Whether that's the case, I don't know. There certainly is a, is a huge similarity there. It was the case. Yeah, I know we talked about this, right? <laughs> well, they have many. We have many uh, instances of inexcess and big country, quote unquote, stealing from each other. We have the whole Bella thing as well. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. So that's yeah. uh, one of those funny big country conspiracy theories. Well, let's just say that say then that it was the case. In excess, dirty, thieving bastards that they are stole that and actually turned it into a gigantic hit for themselves. But let's face it, it is an incredibly catchy riff. Um, but when you listen to Wonder Great, which is an instrumental and you know, a f- fan dub title as it, as it is because it's a mixture of The Great Divide and Wonderland, it's really interesting to listen to that and then to listen to the final product wonderland and to see what they did with it musically because they did obviously take took some parts directly from that but then they built a new verse structure and um really made for big country a very concise single and most people would say at four minutes long this is not a concise single most people would say uh, you need no more than three, three plus minutes to be a, a good single. So this was this was short for Big Country. Years later, well, not ma- not many years later, but shortly thereafter, they would start to have they would be releasing singles that would be edited, and that always bothered me. And I always thought that played a part in maybe the lack of success with some of those singles because these were actually album tracks that were that were edited in in ways that just kind of lessened the overall feeling of the song. But that's Big Country was never really a singles band. And the fact that they got a song like this out as a single and it did well, testament to the times, but also just a testament to them uh, for what they were able to do with this. Um, Some of the staples that I think would, would really become a part of the Big Country sound were obviously, most of that was obviously formed on the Crossing album and, that's where it all started. But there were a lot of things on the Wonderland song that to me are, are the best things about big country music. And for me, the one thing that I always loved was when big country would mix beautiful, pristine, clean guitars with distorted, nasty sounding guitars. I, I love that mixture. You know, quite often you get songs from bands that are either one or the other. They, they either have this, clean airy sound kind of like new sensation we're talking about really as i remember that song it was pretty much just all that clean sounding guitar heavily processed or you would get the metal approach where everything was just driving distorted guitars big country was one of the first bands that i heard that would really mix those sounds and i loved the way those two would mix together you had the 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 beautiful clean sound of that riff that's played by bruce and then you had Stewart coming in with the distorted part um, that that kicked in the song as well and led into his iconic um, howl that everyone follows along with. So I, I love that, and I think this is a, a great example of that style. Um, you also have uh, an introduction that I 
don't think was really on the first album that much. I know Stuart did use it uh, at times on the skids, but that is the digital delay. And, and I know he used it on the first album, but not quite in this way, which is the same type of way that the edge from U2 was using. Now at the time, a lot of people who didn't know any better would be hearing this and they would be thinking, Oh, he's copying off the edge by playing this guitar this way. And the the part I'm talking about is the pre-chorus where he says the first version of that is when, but when the thunder rolls, it comes and covers up my soul. And you get that. That edge like guitar part. Um, but if you if you know the the context of this, you know that Stewart was doing this before the Edge, and Stewart was actually an influence on the Edge rather than vice versa. But because of the success that you two had, which which came before the success of Big Country, for those who didn't understand, it would seem like Big Country was actually stealing a, a bit of U 2s style. But um, Stewart would use this a little bit more later on on some of the Peace in Our Time era songs, especially. He didn't use it a lot. He didn't use it nearly as much as The Edge did. But um, I I thought it worked great in big country music as well. And I love that that's used in here. Um, And then you've got another thing that's unusual about a single is that you've got Mark, the drummer, let loose on this song in a way that most bands and most... um, record companies and producers would not necessarily be so comfortable about happening on a single um, because there's a lot of drum interplay happening here. And it's interesting that I think Steve Lillywhite went back to some of the things that he did with Mark uh, in the Fields of Fire uh, song, the first song that he did with them, where he had a lot of drum overdubs in that track. And you get them here as well in Wonderland. You get like, even in the beginning, you get this huge rolling tom buildup that leads into the into the portion of the song that really kicks in, and you get other other areas in the song where you'll hear overdubbed snare parts and militaristic snare rolls and and tom accents and things that you can tell when you listen to them aren't being played at the same time. So it's interesting to hear that Lily White kind of went back to that style uh which he used on fields of fire where he had mark playing a bass part and then he and when i say bass b-a-s-e not b-a-s-s and then he had him add some some accents to it So it's an incredible performance by a drummer that you also don't typically hear on top 40 singles at at that time or any time. Um, totally true to the big country ethos and totally true to the big country sound. There's no dilution of any kind in this track from the lyrics to the music. This is them. Maybe they were rushed. Maybe they felt like they could have done it better at the time. But whatever you want to say about that, there's clearly nothing that they were limited in doing um 
one of the interesting things about this song is that it really has no guitar solo. It's got uh, a little guitar break that lasts for a second or so. I wouldn't really call it a solo. It's uh, it's a big country sounding little riff that Stewart does leading into the next uh, verse and the next portion of the song. But there's no big guitar part like there is on Fields of Fire or in a big country, um, which I think is is cool and interesting. The, the the great guitars of this song are in the aspect of the rhythm guitars and the things that are being played there, and the little little flourishes of guitar and o- the various overdubs that are done here. Again, which they would be leading into beautifully uh, on the Steel Town album, and then finally the bass. I mean, good lord, what a what a bass pattern this is throughout this song um even on the verses the the bass is like its own uh its own melody it's you know and and the the rhythm is so great it's like it's just you can't once you hear that you just can't get it out of your head you're just constantly humming the bass part and that's again a rarity for singles you know it's usually you're 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 humming the melody of the song, the vocal melody, or maybe a guitar part, like in like uh, the, the opening riff and back to New Sensation. You know, that part, people were always doing that part when they were thinking of the song. But this, you've got everything. You've got, you've got drum parts that you can, that are immediately memorizable, are memorable. You've got a bass part that's incredibly memorable and very, very technical, both of those as well. And then you've got all these different guitar overdubs. Um, you've got plenty of ha's, in here that's gonna of course probably that was maybe a bone of contention for some of these critics who maybe they heard those and thought well okay here they're doing it all over again without really listening as intently as they should have been um but i remember at the time that stewart saying ha and cha was considered like a really interesting thing about the band so i i can imagine that some people who wanted to criticize could have easily pointed to those again and say oh look this is the ha cha band and is that going to be in every one of their songs here it is again (laughs) the ha cha band oh my god (laughs) yeah it's a new it's a new style um but i i of course love it as i'm sure all of you listening love it and uh it's there's there's just so there are just so many memorable parts of this song that every single musician has a, has something that's incredibly memorable about the song, and that's that's hard to that's hard to do, especially with the single. You know, you would usually think that was something for a big album track that the diehards would really gravitate toward, but this is a single that was re- released to the general public, and to me, it really elevates the whole idea of what a single should be and could be a band performing exactly the way they want to without holding back in any respect and just a pure representation of what big country is and what happens just happens to be their single um, for that time period. So yeah, so many incredible shining moments in this song um, musically, a great representation of what big country is. I mean, there are many, there are a number of songs that you could play for someone just who say, you know, what is big country? Play me something that shows, what what they what they are why you love them so much what is it about that really sums their sound up in one song 
you, know, you could, of course, take the easy routes and go the in a big country fields of fire or, or whatever. But this is one, too, that you could easily pick because it's got everything. Um, the only thing it doesn't have maybe is that, you know, giant memorable guitar solo. But everything else is there uh, from the band uh, and to really show what they are, what they're capable of. Um so yeah, there's no, it's no it's no surprise that this has become a mainstay in the sets, always played, probably ever since they played it at that Barrowland show. I can't imagine that it's ever been out of the set list. Um, I I can't think of a of a show or a tour where it was. So much like in a big country and and in a couple of songs, this is one of the songs that endures. And it's classic, quintessential big country. It's them at the top of their game. It's them feeling completely confident in what they're doing, what they want to do, without any restraints. And it's an amazing rock and roll single that takes the whole genre, to me, to a different level. And I wish that could have lasted. Unfortunately, it didn't. But we did get it. And... um it's a great it's just a great big country song and it's a great song period it's a it's a phenomenal inspirational uh song musically on every level and i love it i can't disagree with that that's truly what it is it's an amazing song and uh, i don't have too much to add to to what you said musically but i'll i'll, I'll try a couple things one thing that really underlines the greatness of the song is despite how many times I've heard it. Whenever it comes on, it's amazing. I, I can't get tired of it. And in sitting down to listen to this song to break it down ahead of recording this episode, I just find myself sitting there listening. And suddenly, instead of paying attention, it's kind of like, shit, the song is over. It, I, I, I got caught up in it and I forgot to listen out and I need to start it over again. Okay, hardship, right? Start it over, the same thing happens. So just several times, just in sitting and listening to this and trying to break it down a bit, uh, you get caught up in it. And it's that kind of song. That's that's what a good song should do. It should just sweep you off your feet and take you away. And Wonderland certainly does that. Like yourself, I, I kind of paid attention to Stuart's choosing of word when he called it dense in that quote from 1990. Because I never think of it as dense from a listener perspective, it's an easy song to listen to. It's a firework of a song. It's got so much going for it, a lot of momentum. But when you sit down and listen, and in the meaning of dense as layered, there's definitely quite a few layers of things going on here and there. And in some ways, maybe that's also a bridge between The Crossing and Steel Town, which I, I know Steel Town is known for having the, the layers and things, even though we know that The Crossing actually has the most overdubs but it's uh, in how they're used and how perhaps they're stacked. And there are sections of Wonderland that has stacking of guitar, stacking of things. It's still not, definitely not at the level of Steel Town and those type of songs. Uh, and it's never really an issue. You never think, wow, I wish we could have a clearer mix of Wonderland. It's really not like that at all. But, but there are quite a few things going on with the little guitars and the details. And that means that in spite of it not having a guitar solo, like you mentioned, there's definitely more than enough for guitar aficionados uh, to, to look into. I want to talk about the intro. Uh, the intro is explosive. It's incredible. 
and uh, it has changed a bit over the years. So I wanted to look at that first, where the recorded version starts with four bars. I call it four bars. Maybe it's actually 16. It depends how you count, but I call it four bars with quiet percussion while a single guitar plays that recurring rhythm pattern from Bruce's demo. And then four bars with more solid drumming coming in and the addition of a louder electric rhythm guitar. And then you have four bars starting with a drum roll where the bass comes in. And those bars also feature Stuart's mountain cry. And then immediately after that, the first verse starts. And that's how the song opens. And uh, they did add a few opening bars extra with some in some extra chicken picking to the intro uh, that happened in the March of 1984. So after having played it a couple months, they just added a few more. That really does not affect the overall structure of the intro. That just starts and then the intro is exactly as described. So they're still playing the intro as on the recorded version. They did that for all of the 80s and a little bit of the 90s, but there was a moment when that changed. And that change happened at the big country fan convention at the Glen Pavilion in Dunfermline on the 31st of August, 1991. A drastic change to how they approach Wonderland. And it really came out of an accident where they play a set at that convention and somewhere in the middle of that set list is Wonderland. So they start playing that as normal, but as they get into it, Stuart starts having technical issues with his setup. He doesn't stop playing. He signals to the band to just keep playing while he tries to sort it out. And they do keep playing, just looking at each other, looking at Stuart, they're keeping it going, and uh, he's trying to fix it. So basically, that, this is the first verse musical section over and over again a couple of times. And that's enough for things to get back on track. Stuart walks up to the microphone and picks up at the appropriate moment. And they can continue the song. Are you enjoying this? Yeah. I'm just doing a wee bit of market research here, you know. You know how cynical we Good figure, how I am 
there are several clips of this convention performance on YouTube, so you can go and actually watch this happen there. And that was the first time the song got an extended opening section because of a technical glitch. And the interesting thing is that this technical glitch would inform how they played Wonderland from there on out, as long as Stuart remained in the band. And already on the next performance, the next time the band played live, six days later in Germany, on the 6th of September 1991, they were going to perform in Bonn. And fortunately, that was a Rock Palast TV concert, so it was captured for posterity. And what we get to see here is the band performing Wonderland with the very same extended intro that they played at the convention, except this time it's rehearsed, the band is playing it confidently, no uh, sideways glances at what's going on here. They go into it, so after the Mountain Cry section, they start playing that little extra few bars while Stuart fires up the audience, does a little dance, and it works really well. And this signals a permanent change in how the song starts for the remainder of Stuart's days in the band. So they must have liked something about how it turned out at the convention, or maybe it gave them an idea, and they decided to extend it like that from there on out. After the return of the band in more recent years, they reverted actually to the original way of playing the song. So that's also interesting, but um, it, it took an accident at the very first big country convention for them to mix up that intro. So interesting little thing in how the song has changed over the years. <laughs> yeah, and very, very well suited to that intro too, that 12-inch intro. Gets people, gets people even more excited. Yeah. Uh, another part that evolved over the years is the middle section of the song where typically Bruce will play the, the bottom end guitar part over and over uh, while something is going on elsewhere on stage. And back in the day, Stuart would have a moment with the audience or say something or play other riffs or even solos over it. So in those cases, the song would get that guitar solo. Yeah, it, it sure did. It, it got a, a huge solo in, in that spot live. It's like, he he definitely made up for any any fact that or anyone who was regretting that there wasn't one in the studio version. <laughs> he made up for that <laughs> yeah. later. He, he would do some really long solos in that spot, even some uh, Eddie Van Halen type of tapping stuff. I remember <laughs> seeing in the nineties, and I thought oh, I don't know about that, but it was he still added his own touch to it. Now it, it became kind of an anything goes section, where anything went. 
<laughs> so uh, summarizing sort of the development of that midsection is a bit daunting. I think that's almost impossible to do because they just did whatever they felt like. Like anything from guitar solos to audience sing-alongs to just having a, a fun speech or some audience interaction. Sometimes he jumped into the audience and danced around a bit, came back to stage, had a bono moment. Anything has happened in the middle of uh, Wonderland during that <laughs> thing. So that section always signaled a bit of fun at big country shows. So that's also uh, something that Wonderland contains and represents to, to fans. to say i really admire bruce's steady hand for some of those sections because at times he'll be standing there playing that section over and over for several minutes on end long <laughs> minutes right and i've never heard him miss a beat and I'm, I'm thinking you can probably say more about that but i'm thinking that type of repetitive steady playing 
but it sounds like it's easy to lose your place if you get distracted by anything going on during the show. But he's playing it like a machine. Yes, he is. And the funny thing, funny thing is, is that that's using. Um, it's not as hard as it seems because it's using the the delay for that. So even though even though it sounds like what he's really playing is just so it's doubling it it's not incredibly difficult to play that but yeah but would imagine it would be monotonous it definitely is quick tangent there's a really funny video on youtube if you go to um i forget the name of the comedian but it's if you probably just search comedian plays like the edge You'll find it. And he he demonstrates this. He's a guitar player. And he says he talks about how everyone thinks the edge is so great. And then he'll play like what the edge is really playing without the benefit of a delay. And it's just like that. It's like, and then he'll say, now here's a delay. So, yeah, he plays like a machine and he's getting help from a machine there, too. But. Yeah, I'm sure it's monotonous. <laughs> Stuart is going. Uh, in my old band, we used to do a cover of "With or Without You" by U2, and that was always oh. a, a, a song where I would take like these long, extended solo breaks, and the bass player would just be playing. Dun 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 dun. He'd be playing that for 20 minutes, and he would hate me so much. So who knows? Oh man. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, if you play any kind of YouTube, that's what you would be playing anyways, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's no matter right. what song it is. So you mentioned Tony's bass line. I, I have to say something about that too, because so many people list Tony's bass line from Wonderland as their absolute favorite bass line of his. And um, I think, in fact, Bruce said the same thing when he was asked on this very podcast that Wonderland was his favorite baseline. And I think Tony even mentioned that himself. And even Scott Whitley, I think I said that. So, uh, and quite a lot of fans certainly will mention this as one of their favorite baselines. So it's, uh, it's, it's up there for me. I, I, I'm not sure I have a definite, there are so many great ones and this definitely is, is one of them. And uh, there are many videos. If you want to see more about, you know, break down the baseline of uh, of Wonderland. Tony did a series of vlogs on his YouTube channel. If you go to the TV's My Time TV, this was the first one he, uh, he did, and he demonstrated how he plays Wonderland, which is worth checking out. So starting on D-flat. That's all it is. chord at the end is uh, basically the root fifth and the octave so nothing too uh, technical about that okay so this is the uh, B section I'll play it at speed
They also did a bass and drums uh, playthrough for Chowney bass guitars, which is out there. And uh, apart from that, what to say about this song? It's just the sum of all parts. Uh, it's everything about this song is explosive. It's a sunburst song. It's like how a flower just blossoms and opens up. And that's how this song is from beginning to end. It's a flower opening up super quickly and bursting forth with energy. So it's uh, quite something to behold. It's, it's definitely a band song. It's a sum of all parts song. Everything about this explosive drums, bass, and all the guitars, the butch vocals, <laughs> anything. And uh, that's where I'm going to leave the music with the sunburst music. It's a, it's a musical celebration. Yeah, it is. That's a great way to put it. Some of all parts is good too, because that, that really, that really sums it up. Yeah. Great track. What a, what a, what an amazing track to get right off of the crossing as you're preparing for what's to come. I mean, uh, I, I regret that I wasn't following that journey in real time because if I had been, you know, a gigantic fanatic before Wonderland came out and then Wonderland came out and I was waiting for it and excited to see what was coming next. I'm sure I would have been just even more insane thinking about what the band was about to release because that just captured everything I wanted in music at that time yeah. just that I didn't even know I wanted. And then I heard that and I was ne would never be the same. <laughs> and just, just briefly too, I think, I think one thing we didn't mention at all in relation to the album that's worth mentioning before we go on to the the rest of the songs is the cover. Yeah. You know, that, that cover is a very iconic cover within big country. And that too really just cements the entire feeling that big country, I think was going for in those early days. I mean, you've got that beautiful cover with, with the deer standing on the rock and the mountains in the back. And I know some people have actually figured out where that place is and and um, done some great detective work to figure out where that image came from. Do you remember where it came from? Where did it, where did it come from? It was an ad campaign for, uh, I think, a Scottish train line. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. We talked about this uh, half a century ago with uh, with the guy who made it. That's what, yes, okay, that's right, Julian, yeah. Maybe we can dig up those comments. It'd be worth it. It's been so long. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's a good idea, actually. In, uh, in fact, I was wondering if you designed that EP, the Wonderland EP cover with uh, the deer and that type of thing? Yeah, did. And, um, I mean, the whole Wonderland thing was based very much on um, uh, 30s railway posters. Oh, was, nice, yeah. There was a big thing with, you know, sort of a railway, you know, come to Scotland and da da da, da and, and they would be very nice. There was an artist called, um, an artist called Brian Cook, who uh, did these amazing paintings for railway companies in the 30s and 40s. Mm. That was very much the sort of starting point for Wonderland. But interestingly enough, we did some variants. I don't know if you've seen that. There was sort of like a remix version on Wonderland and what have you where they... Um, I've seen some with different colors, it seems. Yeah. Well, basically, back in the day, you had four... You have you have your cyan plate, your magenta plate, your yellow plate, and your black plate. Right. Yep. And I don't know who it was. It might have been Andy, but somebody said, "Well, how would it be if you printed the yellow plate cyan and the magenta plate yellow, and 
So basically, ah, yeah, okay, everything up in the air, and that's actually what he came up with. Interesting. That explains it. Okay. Made constant, but the other three were kind of shuffled around. That's you know you've just solved a long term mystery <laughs> for us. Like, why were those covers different? <laughs> It says so much about what the band is trying to evoke in the listener and that sense of wonder, pardon the pun, and just the bigness and the vastness of the sound and the, and the emotions that they're trying to convey. There you go. Right, right on that Wonderland cover, you, you get that. And it's a perfect tie-in with The Crossing, um, but different from The Crossing, which was a very simple cover. You know, the crossing, the crossing evoked those feelings with the music itself. And then with some of the imagery that went inside the album and then that was used later to promote certain singles and things like that. But this yeah. was the first time that they used an actual cover of something they released or, or an album that they released beyond a single that really um, said in, in bold terms what they wanted their sound to look like <laughs> really which i think is interesting and then we've got the you know the the deer which of course will, would play a part in other songs like the eagle soars above the clouds the deer ran in the hills in wild country among the deer you know the the lyrics from my lead on that harken back to that imagery um yeah so that 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 album cover uh, even though i had it on cassette it, it always was very evocative to me, and I, I loved looking at it and thinking about it while I was listening to the music. And I also had yeah. the Wonderland tablature book that came out, and I can talk more about this when we get to the song The Crossing, because it plays a part in that, which I think is interesting. But there was a, a guitar tablature book that came out around that time um, that that attempted to do tablature for, for the guitars on that album and failed <laughs> utterly. But uh, a lot of good imagery in that book, too, in a, in a larger size. So, yeah, great, great images on that. Makes a great T-shirt and great album cover. Yeah, and very unusual colors, too. Yeah. I imagine it stood out on the shelves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, pinkish hues and... Sort of pastel-type, lightish uh, colors. Yes, yes. It's a bit unusual. I, I certainly didn't have many albums with those type of color schemes. No, I would agree. Yeah, same here. All right, well, we've gone over our 80 minutes. No big surprise, but it's not too, been too bad. <laughs> but we did get the entire context of the, the album and <laughs> one song. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, man. Let's see what happens next time. Yeah, it will probably be shorter. I think um, the whole lead-up always takes more time than we think. Everything takes more time. And this being also the, the, the lead of song from the release, there's more to say on, on that. So, yeah, everything takes more time. I think that's the best way to summarize it. Everything <laughs> takes more time. You think we're going we're, we're gonna to give short shrift, or however you say that, to, to a song like All Fall Together or The Crossing? I mean, come on. We're, we're looking at another epic deep dive here for four five six yeah, songs those those songs probably i will have more to say on than the other two that you didn't mention yeah 
Wow. In fact, some of those other two, I will have very little to say about, to be honest with you. Unless I can drum up some comments, <laughs> which I, I'm sure I can, because everything takes more time. That's right. Well, we'll be talking about a song that may now be my all-time favorite big country song. It shifts. It shifts from time to time, and I think it's lately shifted into the favor of this particular song. So we can talk about that next time. Ooh. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, if, if we have time. Well, we're talking about the song either way, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All good right. stuff. We're going again. Yep. It was good. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this return to the deep dive waters, which haven't been cleaned since the last uh, deep dive we did. Filthy, filthy, disgusting pool of water we're standing in. But um, maybe we'll get it clean for the for the next outing. But in the meantime, as we approach the the epic episode 100, we thank you for your continued listenership over this past decade. Yes. And it won't be another decade of episodes, I can promise you that. Nah, well, let's, let's cross that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time. Look look for us on Facebook, the usual spots, and uh, bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com if you want to send us a, a message. And we will see you next time for another 80-minute episode in quotes. <laughs> Fare thee well, my fairy fay. Bye bye. It took me a minute. Bye bye. You need to. Bye bye. So we started exact. Do you think we'll end exact? We'd better. Yeah. I'm not gonna sit here. I'm not gonna sit here for three hours. <laughs> three. Well, there's uh, ending exact or overrunning with one hour. Uh, no, should be enough. Two hours, one song. <laughs> Come on, we can do one song in two hours. And, well, and a setup. Yeah, I think we can. Which I'm assuming be will be will be mostly you because you've got you you're the detail man. So I'm assuming you've. <laughs> I'm well prepared. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to check something fun now because I can look at when this document was created initially. The Wonderland EP document <laughs> that I've been working on. I just need to find the... Um... Oh, holy smokes. It also tracks... <laughs> it tracks how many minutes I've spent editing it. No way. Oh, yeah. Man. You've got to yeah. share that. I... It's, I mean, this is actually version two, and that was created in July 20 because the first one got weird. But I can go into it, the first one and see that that's years ago. But the amount of editing time for this version is 1,554 minutes. <laughs> oh, man.
But none yeah. of that has got to be just open in the background. Uh, there's no way I spent like 1,500 minutes. Oh, plus. yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to complete what I started now. I'm going to go look for the first version. Is this all right here. is this all in Word that you're able to find these this info? Yeah. Interesting. It is. So I'm going into Wonderland. Here's the first one. Hasn't been opened since July. That is when I opened uh, or created the second version. So that was created also in July, but 2017. So I've been preparing for this for, gosh, how many? Five years? Nearly five years. Oh, my gosh. It's unbelievable. But that's when we started talking about doing Wonderland. That's true. But we did say... Five years from now, we will do Wonderland. We need to start preparing now. <laughs> no, <we're taking> <laughs> well, let, let me check my notes as a as a way to, to compare, compare and contrast. <laughs> let, me, let me see. Uh, oh, I started this one. This will be good. I started this in March, uh, March twenty March twenty third, and I have spent. Wow. 62 minutes. So you found it. You found where to find the info. <laughs> no. I'm making no. it up off the top of my head. But it's a, it's about, about right. <laughs> you don't have a Word document, do you? You have a... I do. I have a, a Word napkin. document. You have a napkin. I, I'm looking at a Word document right now. I don't believe it. It's, it's one and a half pages. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> so now oh. we're counting pages. Let's see here. Yeah, with with lots of returns, short lines, um, random thoughts thrown in. Yeah, that's pretty much what I have. Lines like "unreal performance" by Mark. <laughs> no, it's not that many. Thirteen pages. All right. Well, that's good. Yes, yeah, so you actually have more than normal. Normal <laughs> being three sentences. Yeah, you have less.
But when I look at you, I see you feel the same way too. And you will take my hand and be with me in Wonderland. I am an honest man. Sheila, you got a Bundy and Coke there. Me mouth's drier than a dead dingo's donger. 